Hello, and welcome to The Right Can't Read, a show about how conservatives don't understand how culture works. I'm Robert Sharkey, and I am joined today by my co-host and world-famous Instagram hiking influencer, Aaron Simon. So Aaron, what is one piece of advice you give to young people who want to become famous for hiking on the internet? Well, you know, I gotta I gotta apologize in case my uh, connection craps out, because I'm right now up in the Yukons, <laughs> and, you know... Because it's 1840? It's, yeah, you know, I'm... Well, I, I'm really going back into the roots and panning for gold, I think, is what it's my new crypto coin that I'm trying to launch by going up into the, in the Yukon coin. And it's going to be minted using blockchain gold. So if you my advice to you, the, the youth of today, as we face a complete societal collapse, is you ha get into those hills before your neighbor, the neighbors, your neighbors are going to go too, but you need to go first. Quit your jobs, go into the hills, go start. You're going to, you, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to get a chisel. You're going to want to get a chisel, find some rock and just start going at that rock because eventually you're going to hit gold, gold dust or gold bricks or gold ingots. Statistically, can, eventually that is true. Yeah, and it's you can do uh, it. Minecraft is a good training simulator for this. So uh, that's my advice. You, you heard it from the man himself, Aaron Simon. Go into the woods and hit stuff with a chisel. Yeah. Well, Aaron, uh, do you know who George Orwell is? Uh, I think that's my neighbor who screams every night from midnight to 1215 in the morning. Exactly. Waking. Yeah. Is that, is that who we're talking yeah. about today? The, yeah. The author of 1984 who lives next to you in your apartment in Portland, Oregon and screams yes, late yes. into the night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I, as a, uh, a recovering literature major, I am of course aware of George Orwell. Mm. The, the second question I have for you today is, how do you feel about getting really sad in the first 30 seconds after you wake up? Um, that's just what I do. You know, yeah. I wake up and I look at these soaring vistas of the Yukons <laughs> and I see the eagles flying and I think I, that will never be me. And I get very sad. And then post a picture of the eagle, hashtag I, deep with that quote underneath it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's how you become an influencer. In the hope that Elon Musk sees your cryptocurrency. <laughs> And tweets about it, and then I can <laughs> buy uh, Dune, all of Dune, <laughs> all of Dune. I will those. I I love it. You know, you gotta. There, there's a, a listener. In case you're not aware, uh, there there was a crypto group that bought a copy of the storyboard. It's a massive document uh, for Alejandro Jodorowsky's version of Dune. So not not even like. A manuscript copy of the Dune novel or any of the Dune novels, but a, a storyboard for a movie that was never made. And they claimed that this gave them control of the copyright and they were going to go and democratize Dune. I don't know if that's what they were, that's what the, the words they used, but they were going to open it up into the public domain. Just not, just stupid. So that's what I'm going to do with my billions. Exactly. I will buy all of Doom. Buy all of Doom. I will uh, buy out Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson's rights. And uh, it will be nothing but, I, I will be the new writer 
for Dune. And it will just be the space Jews and dog chairs. It will just be the space Jews and chair dogs. Chair dogs. No, no cat people. No, no. none of that shit. <laughs> Sorry, Futars. You're done. <laughs> don't read the last two books of Dune. Just don't do it. <laughs> I never will. <laughs> Besides reading the last two books of Dune, there's another great way to be very sad immediately upon waking up in the morning. Oh, that's right. That's what we were talking about. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> And that way, friends, listeners, and assorted errands is to go on Twitter.com. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. Now, being on Twitter is normally, like, fine if you want to be depressed. It will get the job done. But if you're efficiently minded and want to achieve the optimal amount of despair in the lowest amount of time, you need to have two Twitter accounts. I have one Twitter profile <laughs> for hearing real news. What? <laughs> I have one. Keep going. <laughs> I have one Twitter profile for hearing real news about how climate change is bad and the FBI is trying to control your thoughts through Avengers movies. Also to see pictures of titties and dogs. This account is very depressing, <laughs> but it is based in fact and has pictures of titties and dogs. So it's depression per <laughs> unit time is still manageable. It's still so it's so weird to me that 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 Twitter is a place for titties. Yeah, you I know, don't sex workers, I, it, Leftist I, yeah, sex worker Twitter is the best part of Twitter. That's a, it, it, it's, it, I, what a world. It goes leftist sex worker Twitter, rabbi Twitter, angry dad Twitter. Those are, <laughs> that's the official ranking. <laughs> and if there's ever a sex worker, angry dad rabbi, he will win the internet. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm sure there is somewhere. God, that's a follow I need to have. <laughs> So that account isn't depressing enough, which is why you have to have a second Twitter, an unbelievably worse Twitter. On this Twitter, you will get to hear opinions about how vaccines are bad and the Jews are trying to control your brain through the Taco Bell Burrito Supreme TMCR. <laughs> there are no titties allowed on this Twitter. All the dogs are in Trump bandanas. Oh, no. It is one of Wait, the so most... you still follow dogs on this on this second account? Yeah, there's, there's conservative dogs you can follow. Okay. All right. But they just happen to have Trump bandanas. Yeah, they're like conservatively okay. branded dogs. America first dogs. All right. I just didn't know if the... Like, so is this like a balm, a bandage on the, on the, uh, the pain? Absolutely not. No? Okay. It's, it's to make just... yourself truly depressed. That's, the, okay. that's what this all one's right. all about. All right. <laughs> it is the most effective way to make yourself suffer on the internet without diving straight into Nazi blogs or watching reruns of HGTV shows, <laughs> which are the only two worst things I can think of. The reason I bring this side of Twitter up is that it has a main character, and that isn't Tucker Carlson or Ron DeSantis or even Donald Trump. It is George Orwell. These people love this old-timey English author so much, they constantly use his name as a fucking adjective. A quick Google search will show you that according to Fox News, vaccine passports, critical race theory, Joe Biden's infrastructure bill, not being allowed to kiss chickens are all Orwellian. I shit you not, it was a real time. I, I, I remember that one. It was it was like the one time that you could almost see Tarko Carlson's mask fall up or slip off and he, you can see him. It, his eyes changed in a way that you could see him ask if he really wanted to keep doing this. Is fascism worse? Though? Is fascism <laughs> better than watching a woman hold a chicken for the next yeah. 30 minutes of my life? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good lord. 
Yeah. So pretty much anything you don't like can be Orwellian if you really believe and you work in right wing politics. <laughs> really believe. <laughs> if you really believe. It's like the doc. I think that was a Doc Brown quote in one of the the Back to the Future movies. Famed, famed uh, right wing influencer Doc Brown. <laughs> <laughs> So all this time on right-wing Twitter made me want to do an episode where we discuss the imperfect George Orwell, the right-wing's favorite communist. Who was he? What did his book say? How did a lifetime of socialist writing become an adjective used mostly by weird libertarians? Why did he choose to keep that mustache, knowing it was both very thin and very creepy? Stay with us while we try to answer all these questions and veer wildly off topic. Part one, Curious George's humble beginnings with British yuppies. I want to start this pod by just stating outright that Orwell, while being heavily problematic in a lot of ways, was a leftist extremist who would have hated everything the modern right stands for. It's not really up for debate. He wrote a lot of political shit. He also fought and almost died in an effort to stop the spread of far-right ideology. But before we can get into why he would have been willing to personally murder Ben Shapiro. I want us to examine a few revealing moments from Orwell's life and see how he became so far left, which is a perfect Barry. <laughs> Take that out and post. No, you got to leave that in. Barry is uh, the godhead. Yeah. Who lives in my apartment. The 30-pound the godhead who, who's trying to dig in a cod in a couch. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, oh, very big yawn. <laughs> this is podcast related. Mitchell showed me a meme yesterday. I woke up in the morning, immediately handed me his phone. And it was the two arm meme. And on one side was um, your dog in the morning. And on the other side was conservative pundits. And the hands in the middle was, ooh, that's a big stretch. <laughs> ooh, that's a winner. Victory. <laughs> Ooh, that's a stretch. That's good. Oh. Yeah. The best thing is when you stretch at the same time as and you get to share that little moment. But they never tell you it's a good stretch because all dogs are <laughs> bastards. All dogs are <laughs> a dab. A dab. A dab. Also, I have one more quick editorial note. It is my opinion that you should always mock British people. And always. I will throughout this episode. Yeah, as you should, they have no teeth. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> they eat nothing but cabbage. Yeah, they are, they are gross teeth, black pudding eating, shoes with buckles wearing, wearing freaks. Anything other than a complete rhetorical assault seems to lead to the lionization of these omnicidal weirdos from Her Majesty's Death Island. <laughs> I don't know what it is about our culture, but we are way too susceptible to globe-trotting white dudes ruining country after country and then putting it all in a series of charming short stories. <laughs> see lawrence of arabia all of rudyard kipling which i know you like or any spy movie you do like kipling i do like kipling i think uh you know he's got uh you know the, the, the relic of of colonialism and vicious vicious capitalism and the east india company and all that but uh for i think we're going to be doing this a lot in this episode so Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but my assumption is we're going to be saying for his time, he was okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, anything you say about George Orwell is like, he was probably <laughs> for his time. Yeah. And Kipling very much falls into that. Uh, there's There are strains of Kipling acknowledging 
that what England did everywhere where it had holdings was reprehensible and horribly exploitative. Still a member of that cast of British civilization. So that's unfortunate. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, and we he have wrote some to- good ghost stories. He did write some good ghost stories. Yeah. So we have to mock Kipling. We have to mock T.E. Lawrence. We have to mock Ian Fleming. And we have to mock George Orwell as, in some ways, history's clownish villains. Because maybe if we mock every British imperialist ever, I will never have to talk to my dad again about which James Bond movie is best. <laughs> <laughs> no, you still will. That, that's, you, as long as you talk to your dad... As, you know, a a male presenting individual, you will have the conversation of which James Bond is best. No, that is the point of this podcast. Canceling James Bond. No, you doesn't. Shark, we we can't change anything. Nothing changes. (laughs) We are we are throwing rocks into the ocean trying to kill Poseidon. (laughs) When the the revolution comes, I will make no excuses for the James Bond related terror. (laughs) Absolutely. You you and I both know the revolution will will be both uh, born and stifled, uh, smothered in its crib. This is true. (laughs) For reasons that George Orwell understands very well. We'll get into that later in the episode. (laughs) So with all that out of the way, Let's begin by discussing George Orwell's early life and how that radicalized him. So, Aaron, to really understand George Orwell's beginnings, you have to know that British people sometimes created things called colonies. Have you heard of colonies before? Colony. 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 Yeah. So in the video game, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. The documentary Assassin's Creed Valhalla. The interactive documentary. You form a colony in England and make friends with a bunch of Saxons and perplexingly enough, a Chinese woman who was living in your, your village, which I... The documentary is... <laughs> yeah, the documentary is Essence Green Valhalla. Yeah, so, so that's, a great, that's a great little insight. Uh, so colonies, the British got really into it when the Vikings did it to them and were like, hey... That was really nice. Let's do it to everyone else in the world. (laughs) A colony was when a small group of British people came together to decide they no longer wanted to live in a town named Upton Snodsbury. So they would all get together in the claymation countryside, pack up their crumpets, play one final game of tiddlywinks with friends and family, then get on a boat to discover somewhere that people already lived. If someone else had already discovered it, they would instead just murder everyone who lived there in an effort to open their own small business on a mountain of bodies. <laughs> Not unlike uh, current American business practices. Yeah, exactly. But like way more charming. Way more charming. Because they very pastoral. They, pastoral, they wear tweed. They do wear tweed. Uh, they they put little, little poppies on their lapels yep. for Remembrance Day. <laughs> There's a certain je ne sais quoi that the, yeah. uh, the, the English have. Yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> English colonization is kind of like Indiana Jones meets Jeffrey Dahmer in the style of Wallace and Cromwell. <laughs> <laughs> <The> take. <laughs> and it was how George Orwell, whose real name is Eric Blair, was born in Motihari, India in 1903. His family was doing a colonialism. And George was from Mm. a long line of colonialism doers. 
And this is the first part of the story where we say that he was good for his time. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're keeping track at home, this is one. One. Go ahead and take that shot. Yeah. You're going to be, you're going to want to hold that bottle. Yeah. Close by. Yeah. And a large pot of some kind. Yes. Because you're going to be puking. (laughs) George's father was the brilliantly named Dick Wallumsley Blair. (laughs) Hell yes. Very British. Very Very charming. Very Wallace and Gromit. Yep. Um, Richard worked in the opium department of the British colonial government of Occupy. I'm sorry, India. the opium department? Opium department. So I, I, I know intellectually this is, they oversaw the, the harvesting and distribution of opium and not just, this is where we're going to throw everyone and just get them high all day. That's what I really would have liked to think his job was. Yeah, but, but not I that. assume it was probably just like a middle ground between loose street murder and selling cocaine at a playground. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that's most of what it was, was like paperwork about murder. Yeah. I've done no research, so don't at me on Twitter. Why Why would care. we do research? That's not what the point of this is. Yeah, he worked in the opium department of British India. I'm sure he killed a lot of people. Do your own research. Yeah. This is, you got to do your own research about this. <laughs> and by Yukon Coin. Yeah. And Aaron Force Plus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can subscribe to my Discord channel for only $30 a month month and that gets you into the basic tier the basic tier is when you can use emotes that i have designed myself just pictures of your dog it's just pictures of barry yep so his dad worked in the opium department his mother was ida blair who was smart vivacious and 20 years younger than her husband she didn't have a job because misogyny everyone was Mm. misogyny back then so ida couldn't do stuff and was married to a man 20 years older than her yeah. In, in short, the Blairs were a super normal family for Britain at the time when George was born. But while the Blairs were normal, George was definitely not normal, kind of ever in his life. From the time he was young, he was an extremely gifted child. And this led to him being able to attend very fancy schools that a family of his economic status normally wouldn't be able to attend. In the States, we call them private schools, but in England, they're called public schools. For some reason, as our resident England expert, what's the reason, Aaron? Uh, You've been to places named things like Canterbury. <laughs> yeah, I the 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 reason it's called public school is I I I think it has something to do with the education being focused on a uh, on a on a secular framework mm-hmm. and not like a religious. But I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. I. I did not associate with anyone who went with who went to public schools. I went to university with uh, people who went who came from places like Braintree in Essex and used to tell me about the knifings that they saw on a daily basis on the trains coming from Essex. Don't go to Essex. Essex is a bad place. If you go to if you go to Essex, you'll get knifed on the train. Someone will go up to you and they'll be able to set, they'll be able to tell that you're not from Essex and they'll knife you. Don't go to Essex. There's there's a horrible show about Essex called The The Only Way is Essex. It's, it's not the only way. There, there's so many other ways. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I have no idea. I didn't I didn't talk to anyone who went to those schools. There are the people who go to those schools are dandy fancy lads, and I don't associate 
<laughs> don't associate with dandy fancy lads. You can sort of think of these public schools as like the same function as the American Ivy League. Like it is where the dandy fancy lads go. Yeah. It's like one third social club, one third school and one third place where they rip out your soul and replace it with the heart of a dying star whose gravitational hunger can only truly <laughs> be satisfied by the complete destruction of all things good. Yeah. And really, there's like two routes out of this system, which really goes from birth until uh, you exist in some weird department, some weird yeah. ministry yeah. Uh, in, in London. Yeah. Uh, there are two paths. The first is uh, you become a, a living embodiment of Her Majesty's government and enforce the uh, the will of <coughs> our uh, our God Queen <laughs> upon <laughs> the the face of the world, or or you become a member of Pink Floyd. That's a much better. A member of Pink Floyd go to a fancy British public school. Yeah, that's uh, you know you know breaking the wall. Yeah, that's what that's about. Oh shit. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he went to a, a fancy a Danny fancy school. Let me that's fact why. check myself on that one, but I think that's where. That's why. Um, but yeah, like uh, the Rolling Stones, I think they all went to maybe not like Eaton, but they uh, went to more high end education than like the Beatles did. Dang. Yeah. You heard it. You heard it here first. The Rolling Stones, not in fact. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh shit. Well, this is cool. Roger Waters. Uh, uh, this is now a Pink Floyd podcast. Yeah. Uh, his his father was uh, the son of a coal miner and labor party activist and Dang. a communist. Dang. Uh, that's pretty cool. So Waters attended a junior school in Cambridge, but not Cambridge. All right. So maybe maybe I was mistaken about the the dandy fanciness of the members of Pink, Pink Floyd. Floyd. Yeah. Communist, new communist icon, Pink Floyd's day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Pink Floyd, the, the front men of, of Pink Floyd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these schools are kind of like Harvard, but for high schoolers. And George got in to them over and over again, in fact. Mm -hmm. He and his family had the opportunity to, like you were saying, become a part of the British elite, like the top hat and monocle part of Britain. He was smart, academic ambitious and more than anything else very white in short a hypothetically perfect student for these fancy british boarding schools however this is where george's life actually begins to get interesting he hated the schools and they absolutely hated him back he hated these schools for way more reasons than i can get into here but here is a quote from his essay such such were the joys where he describes what he learned at school <laughs> great title <laughs> That's a killer title. Great title. <laughs> yeah. Quote, virtue consisted in winning. It consisted in being bigger, stronger, handsomer, richer, more popular, more elegant, more unscrupulous than other people, in dominating them, bullying them, making them suffer pain, making them look foolish, getting the better of them in every way. Life was hierarchical, and whatever happened was right. There was the strong who deserved to win and always did, and there were the weak who deserved to lose and always did everlastingly yep <laughs> yeah that sounds about you know healthy yeah yeah good good time if any of you listeners would like to hear more about how george hated being sad poor and ugly at a british public school i strongly recommend the essay such such were the joys it's an interesting look into what you were getting into before about how education parenting brutality and propaganda can kind of collide in 
and trying to make a certain kind of person yeah. is what I it's, think is so interesting about these schools. It's like the, the, the schools are blenders for a, for a healthy smoothie, but really <laughs> the healthy smoothie just makes you uh, despise anyone who does not come from your exact social station. Yeah. Yeah. George's <laughs> argument, and I think ours too here, is that the brutality and vacancy of British education at the time was completely intentional. The goal was to turn young boys into emotionless, vicious, and brutal warriors for the British Empire. Maybe not like soldiers, but capitalists, politicians, and writers who would push specific agendas, turning the kids into the kinds of people who could do the horrors necessary to keep England very wealthy and very prosperous relative to the rest of the world. And you see like a big crowd in the British intelligentsia at this time, whether it's like Roald Dahl and Ian Fleming or Winston Churchill or kind of any of these people who are all like a very specific kind of British intellectual. Yep. Wait a minute. Are you trying to say that Roald Dahl was not a cool guy? Not a cool guy. What? Not a cool no. guy. Not Dude. Roald Dahl. I'm just going to. I'm just going to type in Roald Dahl accusations of anti-Semitism here. On my, oh, no. Was Roald Dahl an anti-Semite? I didn't know that one. Yeah. there. I mean, I think in, in the way that a lot of these guys nice. were, were like just uh, was not fond of the Jews. Said, <laughs> said things like the Jewish question. Yeah, I don't think he would ever go that way. So <laughs> I just typed in uh, Roald Dahl and Jews. And the first first thing that pops up is, yes, Roald Dahl was a Jew hater. <laughs> Question uh, answered. So there is a this is a quote. This is not me being a self-hating Jew. Uh, there is a trait in, trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. Maybe it's kind of a lack of generosity toward non-Jews. I mean, there is always a reason why anti-anything crops up anywhere. Even a stinker like Hitler just didn't pick on them for no reason. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then uh, forward, uh, the, the forward, a you know pretty prominent uh, Jewish paper that's been around for ages, has an article about this. Uh, <laughs> I'm certainly anti-Israel and I have become anti-Semitic. So oh, no, yeah, this is this is an unfortunate. It, so, all right, the listeners, if you're not a yid, uh, what we like to do amongst ourselves is play. Is that guy Jewish? Whenever we're watching TV amongst like family or friends, uh, there is the dark side to that, which is does that goy hate us? And the answer is more often than not, yes. Yeah, every every time. I, uh, my roommate was raised Catholic and he told me a story yesterday about how when he was in Sunday school, they showed him a video that was just pictures of the Holocaust next to pictures of Planned Parenthood and said they were the same. <laughs> and I thought that was one of the all-time winners for Goy shit. Oh, God. I've never heard anything more I... Goy than that. Well, I, so I remember... And this, this popped into my head a, I don't know, a little while ago after being buried. And uh, one of the things my subconscious likes to do is make me think of all of the things that I fucked up in life and not telling people that they were being full of shit. So 
it chose this this specific memory to throw at me at this given day and it was uh we were in class and this was like this must have been middle school and we were reading or talking about the diary of Anne Frank and the teacher said does like the the clean Wehrmacht thing saying well the the German army wasn't <laughs> did nothing bad. They were just following orders, and I didn't say anything because I was eleven. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, so that's that's right up there too. Yeah, that is right up there too. Oh, good lord, <laughs> listeners! I hope you're having fun. Yeah. I'm about to crack open a beer. <laughs> Um, yeah, so despite British boarding school's best efforts, they never succeeded in turning George Orwell into an Ian Fleming or a Winston Churchill. He always remained an outsider. Poor, small, spiteful George Orwell. <laughs> Man after my own heart. Yeah, can really relate. Yeah. And these days at school made George realize the stark realities of British class warfare and hate the brutally repressive society that perpetrated it on him. And I think it was really the beginning of his road to leftism, was like hmm. being a scholarship kid at these schools. That'll do it. Yeah. As anyone who's been poor in any kind of rich space hmm. experiences, you get this sort of realization that they don't want you to be one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, now, hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you on that, because I, I read a book years ago Okay, co-authored by none other than former President Donald Trump. And in that book, he and the co-author, whose name escapes me at the moment, explicitly stated, we want you to be rich. And all you have to do is send us $30. And all you have to do is learn how to flip around real estate and evade taxes. Such a simple answer. I should have <laughs> thought of flipping real but, estate years yeah, ago. Yeah, and the key... And they wrote the entire this the entire book is to flip it around before any money changes hands, so you don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> He's gonna be president again in two years. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yep. 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 Gonna be cool. Yep. Yeah, but after many years of this schooling, his teachers, his headmasters, and his family were kind of done with George's shit. All he did at school was fuck off and hang out with friends and write. Just carve Iron Maiden into desks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was all of us in high school. Yeah. <laughs> so George had to drop out and begin to work for a living. Mm. And he did what any reasonable and morally confused high school dropout does. He decided to become a cop. <laughs> I'm sure that went well for him. He sounds like the kind of person who would succeed on a police force. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, he has a good time. <laughs> and that's the end of part one. Need a break? Keep going? Um, I'll tell you what. Let me go grab a Guinness because I will want to pop that open in a minute. Wait, hold on. I know there. I said stay. I explicitly said stay. <laughs> you fool. You fool. Spanish Civil War is crazy. I don't know how much detail to put in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's like one of those things where even if you're giving an overview, you spend like 40 minutes giving the overview. Yeah, yeah, because you have to be like, so everyone else was having World War II. And... <laughs> 
And the Spanish were like, we're going to have our own war over here. And, <laughs> and then during that war, they decided to have another war against people who mostly agreed with each other. Just <laughs> nestling right in there. Yeah, it's it's definitely the like Russian nesting dolls of yeah. <laughs> conflict. Oh. All right. Part two. Curious George does violence for the state. This is the second moment in George Orwell's life that I feel is worth focusing on. He once again, quite literally in this case, has the opportunity to become a successful soldier for empire. And once again, he is promoted and rewarded for his brilliance. And he loses the opportunity because he doesn't fit in with society's political and moral expectations. When he was 19, he joined the Indian Imperial Police, which I'm sure were about as great as the British Opium Department in terms of like being cool yeah, guys. They, they were not good. No. Um, I don't know if it was the imperial that this specific branch, but there was one of the many revolts toward the end of the 19th century was uh, a, I think, it, yeah, it was the result of the English choosing to, like they, they were, I think they were greasing gun belts with pig fat and, uh, you know, obviously neither the Hindus nor the Muslims were very in favor of that and it turned into a massive revolt with shitloads of people dead and uh i don't know that the indian imperial police were a direct trigger for that but at a certain point they all just kind of blend together yeah and the indian imperial police were actually a direct response to that the sepoy rebellion ah there we go sepoy rebellion yeah, yeah. they were an organization formed after the sepoy rebellion because mm. british people suddenly got very scared that having indian cops in india means they would be armed indians in <laughs> india <laughs> It's colonialism just distills itself like yeah. further and further down to apartheid. Yeah. Until it's just like seven dudes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the important part is that George is like absolutely a fucking stormtrooper here. He's part of the Indian Imperial Police, which is like, it's right there in the name. Yeah. So he is the baddies. He signs up to be the baddies and he gets on a boat to Myanmar. This isn't what we now consider India, but the British said it was back then because they don't give a shit what you think. Mm -hmm. So the Indian Imperial Police in Myanmar, just like every other portion of Orwell's life, he was super smart and he got promoted quickly. He was a rather successful cop in some ways. At his peak, he was a subdivisional officer, quote unquote, which is about as high as you can climb before you become a truly big cheese a head honcho, if you will. <laughs> Big cheese, I believe, is the rank at which you get a full delivery of a wheel of cheese at your desk yeah. every, every week so that you can have a proper tea break. Wensleydale. Um, yes. Yeah. A uh, subdivisional officer was partially responsible for keeping more than 200,000 Indian people oppressed. And he was raking in like four grand a month adjusted for inflation, which is... A pretty sweet gig if you're into yeah. like class traderdom. Yeah. Four grand a month. It's it's tempting. Yeah. It's it's more than I make. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you don't even get a nightstick. It, and now I yeah, I they took that away from me. Yeah. Because I they, I I allegedly was going into the printer room and just attacking people if they used the kind of paper I don't like. Allegedly, you can't prove that. Yeah. And now you're confined to beating people to death with Excel spreadsheets. Right? <laughs> Ugh. Those bastards. Rat bastards. 
However, even making all this money and with this fancy job, George, once again, just like school, didn't fit in. He didn't fit in because he actually knew people from Myanmar, unlike all the other cops. He learned the Burmese language. He hung out with the locals. He got local tattoos. He attended churches for the Karen ethnic group. He, in some ways, became as much a part of Myanmar culture as a white dude whose job is to kill people in Myanmar can. Mm -hmm. Which is the cardinal mistake of colonialism and obviously made him sympathetic towards the very people he was supposed to be oppressing for the Raj. It's yeah, it's the whole term of going native. Yeah. If you yeah. uh if you go native, then you you lose your uh perspective on what you're there to do. Yeah, which is part two of woke for his time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's his shot. Take yeah. a shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Shot number yeah. two. Yeah. He thought that people from Myanmar were in fact people. He didn't think you had to treat them very well, but he thought they were people, which yeah, good for his time. Yeah. Yeah, arguably that's good for now. Yeah, that, that's fucking true. Yeah. Yeah. Better than Raw Doll in the <laughs> lots of people in the Jews and lots of people in, in Arabs and some we're we're not a good species. We should just give control to the dogs. Yes. The the true the true leaders of the world. Yep. Yeah. So obviously George's sympathy for these natives would become a stumbling block on his ability to do his job. So much so that when he got a really bad case of dengue fever and was sent home to Britain for a year, he just flat quit. That refers to the uh, the very fun Cambodian band out of L.A., right? Yeah, he got a really bad case of that band from L.A. Yeah. All right. And was sent home. They were like, this is this rocks too hard. George, <laughs> George this is this this rips. You got to go back to England and listen to fiddle music. <laughs> Whatever the fuck the harpsichord is. <laughs> oh, it's it's clangy piano. That's all a harpsichord is. Piano. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So he would never return to Burma. He quit and just like walked out on another opportunity for a life of relative affluence and a promising career doing a colonialism. And uh yeah, like on a serious note, uh Burmese Days is a really good book. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Which you can see a lot of woke for his time, George Orwell shit yeah. in. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was during his time in school that George learned to hate the kind of intellectual soldiers of empire. It was his time in Myanmar that showed him like the very real horror of life under the empire. And he learned the obvious lessons about living under colonialism as a resident of Myanmar. But the thing he really walked away with was the less obvious one which you can find in his short story, Shooting an Elephant, or in Burmese Days. But this quote's from Shooting an Elephant. I chose this one, Aaron. Fuck you. <laughs> quote, I perceived in this moment that the white man turns tyrant in his own freedom that he destroyed. I perceived, starting from the top of the quote, I can read things. No, you can't. <laughs> starting from the top. <laughs> Open quote. I perceived in this moment that when the white man turns tyrant, it is his own freedom that he destroys. He becomes a sort of hollow, posing dummy, the conventionalized figure of a sahib. For it is the condition of his rule that he shall spend his life trying to impress the natives. And so in every crisis, he has got to do what the natives expect of him. He wears a mask and his face grows to fit it. I had got to shoot the elephant. I had committed myself to doing it when I sent for the rifle. To come all that way, rifle in hand, with 2,000 people marching at my heels, and then to trail feebly away, having done nothing? No. 
That was impossible. The crowd would laugh at me. And my whole life, every white man's life in the was one long struggle to not be laughed at. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is a bleak sentiment. Yeah. Very bleak. And oh I think like God. really gets across the fact that like colonialism is horrible for the people under it, but it's a weird like hollowing out of the people who perpetrate it. Yeah. I think about Man. like, yeah. In some ways, he's saying, I think, that, like, colonialists sacrifice their own humanity. That doing that kind of oppression makes you a stock character rather than a person. Mm -hmm. I think of, like, um, whether it's British colonialists, which are, like, a less culturally poignant figure, or, like, the fact that Nazis have sort of stopped existing as, like, a group of people and are now just, like, villains from Mm. video games. Or Stalin's Russia, which is... yeah. Less Vicky shit. Um, (laughs) I think what you're saying, and I believe we can uh, put this on the record, is uh, the Soviet Union was the perfect government and did nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Stalin did nothing wrong. Yeah. All those deaths in in Ukraine had to happen for the glory of the the Soviet Union. They were trying to. That's just the way it is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It it led to a 0.3 percentage gain in average grain production, Aaron. Exactly. This is the scientific dialectic materialism that needs to happen under a true social international socialist regime. And if you don't get that, then uh, fuck you on Twitter, man. I know. I see your accounts. I'm going to send you to the Ukraine. (laughs) Oh, yep. Yep. That is my opinion. All colonialists have a hollowed out dead inside, except for Stalin's Russia and the bullet Raytheon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think this realization was George Orwell's step number away from British conservative ideology. So he sort of realized class warfare exists. And then he became one of the people perpetrating it and realized that like even benefiting from it, even if he was at the top, would be a failure for him which I think is like a really obvious move to the left. Yeah, acknowledging the, the, your role in the system, what the system is doing to other people and yourself and your society, and then stepping away from that and trying to rectify. Yeah, and this is underscored by a, another quote of his, which I disagree with, but also um, he said in The Road to Wagon Pier, which is another one of his works, in order to hate imperialism, you have got to be a part of it. Hmm which I think is really kind of hammers this point home in some ways. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you think that's um, him trying to express like the depths of what actual hate is? Like yeah. it's not an, perhaps one could argue that it is not enough to intellectually know that something is wrong and to fight against it, but to actually be a part of it means that you experience it and you feel it like within the fiber of your life and that allows you to actually hate yeah i think that i think that's probably a good interpretation of that quote actually yeah that like visceral experience of colonialism yeah Yeah. that would be my guess yeah and it's like how my dog hates uh socialism yeah and uh barry kissinger barry kissinger right now he's sitting here glaring at me because he knows that we're talking shit about imperialism yeah, you just, you just, the money will trickle in from the colonies and then down, Aaron. <laughs> Barry knows. Barry knows. 
the U.S. did nothing wrong to the OPEC nation. <laughs> Barry. So that will be the end of part two. And we are, and I'm just doing the part one about um, Orwell's life here because we're probably pushing okay. time on one episode. Okay. So you, you, uh, we're still aiming for like about an hour per episode. Then we're not, yeah. we're not going to go into that, that realm of podcasting where we're going to have like three hour episodes. Yeah. The three hour stream of consciousness. <laughs> you don't want to go with like the blank check school of podcasting where it's just rambling for an hour and a half before you start talking about the movie. I mean, I could. Yeah. <laughs> not a bad idea. Yeah, those are like pretty we kind of do that. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Make editing easier. Yeah, that's uh, it's uh, Gonzo podcast, man. That's realism. <laughs> exactly. So you you're still working on the uh, the the cooptation? Yeah. Side. Okay. Um. All right. Cool. Yeah. I, I thought we were going to go longer. That works for okay. me. Yeah. Um. So do we? I have a whole. I have a third section here. So we probably. Oh, have do you want to get twenty minutes? Oh, cool. Yeah, I 10, thought we were done. Fifteen twenty. Yeah. Which is just about his time in Spain, which is the only other part of his life I really give a fuck about. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. Yeah. Three, two, one. Part three. Curious George kills fascists. (laughs) So every time you lead in with a curious George does X, I, 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 if, can you draw? No. Oh. But I should come up with a series of curious George. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So learn to draw and, uh. Then we'll start doing this because, and then you know, I'm not gonna write it. I'm I'm just the ideas guy. Yeah. So I think you know it'll be Curious George and Karl Marx as the man in the yellow hat. <laughs> <laughs> Teaching George how to be a communist. <laughs> and it's like every time, every time the book starts, it's it's them opening up with like Marx giving Curious George a lecture, but. The he's standing in front of a blackboard with just nothing but weird formulas that he is like just shoehorning things into. It's <laughs> like, so, well, what you need to really think about is the time value represented by an average worker's wage and energy expense in a shift, and then you need to express that shift based on like the 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 current value of time production and good worth value <laughs> and then at the end of every book it's just george orwell being like i guess you were right carl we don't need to write clearly and concisely in a way people can understand yeah so i i read uh i've got this i don't know if you were still in redacted when uh i i got this book but it's like trotsky's edited version of capital and it's just oh nice the essential marks and like half the book is Trotsky giving an introduction <laughs> to this thing. <laughs> and he's like, I've, I've stripped away all of the, uh, the, the, the exact context of what was going on in England. I've stripped away just all of the, these comments about people that he knew. So like capital in this little, this little book takes up about 50 pages. And even then it feels like you are reading just an unending tome. <laughs> God, he really trimmed capital down to fifty pages. It's it's it may be like fifty to seventy or something like that. I but love yeah, Leon it's, Trotsky. It's, yeah, it's absolutely hilarious. And there's like a line in the book where he's like, "If you cannot man manage to read this, then you are not a communist." <laughs> <laughs>
was the only outright Jewish intellectual leader of the Russian Revolution. <laughs> yeah, everyone Leon else was to hide ability it. to take bullshit from people was so low, and it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> there, uh, who was I talking to about this? There was someone I was talking to a while ago about Trotsky, and I was making a making a joke and they're like yeah Trotsky was a good guy I was like no he wasn't you need to re- you need to read about this guy's life <laughs> like he was entertaining and he had good ideas but he was not a good man no. they're like yeah I guess not I was like watch it because you're gonna be a tanky if you keep down that path yeah there was no web, no functional way for him to be a good person <laughs> no no it's like so I've got yeah, a friend to be a monster yeah and so it's yeah deviating far from Orwell but meh uh so like I've got a friend in town who is originally from some some small town in Ukraine and lived in Moscow for a little while and he was telling me about uh people he had met when he was a kid who were like fighters in the Bolshevik revolution holy shit and we were talking about this during like all the uprisings and everything and I was saying you know they're People I've met who really want this to turn into an armed struggle and all that. And he goes, they don't know what that means. I was like, no, they don't. And he goes, you don't know what that means. Don't say that. And I was like, okay. And he goes, I've seen the people who have been in those fights. They are no longer human. There is something oh. in their eyes that makes that shows that they are not human anymore. I was like, <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> like, yeah. And I, if there's some. Huh? The Russian Revolution. Bad place and time to be. Absolutely. But I, I think. It might have been behind the bastards, but there's some other podcast I was listening to that was talking about like the lengths that you that a, a an armed revolt has to go to in order to su- to succeed that render everyone who takes part in it like just shells. Yeah, the the utter depths of horror that you have to go through to overthrow some like a system, and it's like yeah. <laughs> When, like, all the power of the state is laid out in front of you and you have, like, your home-owned rifle. And, yeah, and not even just your state, but the allied states that you are fighting against. Like, you you know, I think one of the failings of uh, the American education system, but even, like, within leftist movements and trying to, like, educate each other about, like, these struggles is you talk about the Bolshevik revolution and like all the things that people had to do to, to make it succeed. And then you just kind of brush over the next 20 years of a constant conflict, both with it, with white Russians and then expeditionary forces from every other Western country mm-hmm. that were trying to just eliminate Trotsky, Lenin and everyone else. So like Trotsky and Lenin living on armored trains for yeah, going from yeah, place like, to place all the time yeah and just fucking brutal so. any of those successful revolutions just like there's so many enemies so immediately yeah. that you just wind yeah. up like almost divorced from reality because of the fear yeah. that happens yeah and you know you you turn into a cornered animal yeah i think about how um Maximilian Robespierre started his career in some ways as an anti-capital punishment advocate. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then... <laughs> yeah. And then he was just, like, yeah. sending armies to burn an entire part of France. Yep. Like, yep you can't maintain values and do that shit in any yeah. way. Yeah. Chilling. So, chilling shit. Someone figured out. 
uh, overthrow your government, but do it in like a cool laid back way. Okay? <laughs> yeah, just be like the dude, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go up with 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 a Molotov cocktail in one hand and then a white Russian drink in the other. Yeah. You know, if, that's yeah, if the big Lebowski met the Zapatistas, that's really what we're going <laughs> for here. Speaking of incredibly violent and horrific revolutions that render people a shell of their former selves. <laughs> we're talking about crypto? Yeah, exactly. Your, okay. your Yukon currency. <laughs> My Yukon Yukon coin. Uh, the third and final moment of George Orwell's life that I want us to consider before we get into details of right-wing bullshit is when he becomes actually cool for the first time. Mm-hmm. George Good. fights fascists, he throws bombs, and he almost gets killed by Stalinists, all of which is based. <laughs> You're not hip with the kids, Aaron. Do you not like based? How, how many how many podcasts are there that refer to George Orwell as based? Is based in this one? And, and do, do they do that on a uh, Chapo? Is that a Chapo Trap House thing? Yeah, yeah. Become the dirtbag left <laughs> and start saying misogyny words. Hell yeah. Or what? What's the other one that people like? Red Scare podcast. Oh yeah, I, I've never I've listened. Never to listened one. to that one. The Chapo anyway. Yeah. Yep. Do, do you think Red Scare podcast was around in in the Spanish Revolution? Let's find out. Yeah, let's find out. <laughs> yes, we are in fact talking about the Spanish Civil War. Civil War, not Revolution. Yeah, yeah. I'm a fool. Fool. <laughs> Literature major. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literature, not history. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> you who aren't familiar with the spanish civil war it's a lot that you won't be able to picture so i'm going to explain it very clearly (laughs) not without charts yeah imagine you're living in the before times the 1930s 20s and 30s a time way before our own it isn't now it's before it's so far in the past that it's in no way relevant to what's happening now (laughs) it might as well be middle earth or star wars in this fantastical wonderland that is Spain about a hundred years ago, liberal capitalism is the dominant system in the world. But because of some flaws at its core, it's created economic downturns, endless wars, wealth inequality, and global environmental catastrophes. That's this, unfamiliar. Yeah, can't can't fucking picture it. Yeah. These all mean that economies are crashing repeatedly. No one knows why, and no one quite knows how to stop it. Everything is chaos, and it's perpetually getting worse. Completely alien. Yeah, might as well be a fantasy novel. Yeah, I gotta go turn on my replicator to get another uh, can of beer here. Yeah, exactly. All this unrest is obviously hardest on poor people, and as poor people starve, everyone begins to take a long, hard look at why we have a goddamn society in the fucking first place. (laughs) We're just gonna let bullshit like this happen all the time. And all this societal introspection means radical politics is on the rise. Everyone is picking a side and becoming entrenched. In the before times, this creates a, I don't know, let's like call it a a culture war, a term I'm coining here. (laughs) (laughs) Never heard this before. These two words have never been. (laughs) If you can imagine a culture war, Aaron, just Mm. like really use your thinky parts and picture a society (laughs) so fragmented about politics and economics and morality that it's almost an impossible problem to fix. It's beyond my reckoning. <laughs> you can't you can't get it. 
I can't get there. I, I don't. Surely there was an easy way. Surely these people saw their, their ideological opponents and said, we can solve our problem with a friendly debate on a stage. Yep. Yeah. With two of the oldest people we can find in the whole world. Exactly. <laughs> They'll know how to do it. They will drool into the microphone, and based on the drool that they that is pooled at the base <laughs> of the microphone, by the end of the debate, we will we will determine the winner for the person who manages to produce the most drool. <laughs> That's is the most physically apt among us because that's, this shows that their body is working properly and if their bro- body is working properly then they are in tune with their mind and thus more uh, more appropriate to lead a nation and that's how joe biden won the 2020 election that's how joe biden won the election in 20 <sighs> <laughs> yep <laughs> and uh speaking of joe biden in the midst of this culture war and societal upheaval and environmental collapse liberal governments are years behind the times and have no idea what the fuck to do about it so they do what they do best which is next to fucking nothing mm. but when they try to do a tiny bit to keep the poorest people in society from starving rich people are thrown into a fucking frenzy <laughs> They collectively shout to each other in the guttural deep speech of the all-powerful demon Mammon. Not let my workers starve to death? What are we, a bunch of communists? (laughs) Then they collectively take up arms to fight for their right to force babies to make matches and mine coal and shit like that. It's before, Aaron. You can't imagine it. Horrific times. So the left and the right begin to fight in the street over what the course of society will be. Baby coal miners or human decency? Thank God we chose human decency. Yeah. (laughs) And liberals watch aghast from a brunch table nearby in Guernica, insisting that this isn't a time to be divisive. (laughs) Guernica, why do I know that name? (laughs) Nothing bad happened there, right? Nothing bad happened in Guernica. Yeah. But if if it did, it was before. The time okay. that isn't now, and you could never imagine it. <laughs> now, all of this is a gross simplification of the conditions that created all the unrest at the beginning of the 20th century, but it is more or less accurate. And nowhere in the whole of the Western world was there more political unrest than Spain. Like, Spain in this time period is what Fox News thinks Portland is right now. <laughs> <laughs> or to be fair, uh what our mayor thinks Portland is That's right true, now. yeah. yeah. <laughs> what Ted Wheeler thinks Portland yeah. is right now. <laughs> Just, it's actually bomb-throwing anarchists, murdering nuns, communists <laughs> killing their boss, fascist death squads, a full-on civil war, and trans cat girls forcing straight white men to get gay married. <laughs> don't check that last one. It's true. You it happened. It yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's why, that, that's why Barcelona is so weird today. Yeah. That's why it has all that gouty architecture. He was made to yes. get gay married <laughs> by a trans cat girl, and he never recovered. <laughs> <laughs> because of all this unrest, idealistic young weirdos from all over Europe get on boats to die in Spain, and George Orwell is one of them. His time in Spain is an important area for us to focus on because it is the moment where the lessons from Orwell's and his time as a cop begin to condense into one coherent ideology. 
He's always been a leftist, or at least a champagne socialist. <laughs> that was uh, the, the follow-up for Oasis hit song, Champagne Supernova. Yeah, yeah. Champagne socialist. Was that a-, a thing when you were in college? Oasis? Did people listen to Oasis? No one listened to Oasis, oh. but the song covers of the song Champagne Supernova came back around, if that's, that's comforting. That's amazing. <laughs> Oasis kind of faded into that creed nebulous space <laughs> that people forget existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except of course, Wonderwall. Did Oasis do Wonderwall? They did Wonderwall. I Wonder- think they were on the same album. Wonderwall was still around, unfortunately. Yeah, that's... Anyway, here's Wonderwall. Yeah. <laughs> I think just because of that bit, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, this is just expected that if you have an acoustic guitar, you're going to learn Wonder Woman. You have no control over it. You you yeah. you pick up the acoustic guitar from Guitar Center. The guy taps the sign that says no stairway. And then they, you know, you, you hand over your credit card and they hand over the chords, the chords and tabs and sheet music for Wonderwall. You have to play it before one, they let you yeah. leave. <clears throat> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So he's he's always a leftist or a champagne socialist. However, it was here that he pivoted to like a more modern form of political leftism. Some might say reasonable form of political leftism. <laughs> the strange thing about Spain at this time was the wide variety of political persuasions that had power. Normally you get like two, maybe three if you're lucky. But in Spain, liberals had an army fascists had an army anarchists had an army socialists had like four armies marxists had an army trotskyists had an army stalinists had like one or two armies everyone was playing risk yeah everyone was playing risk in the city of barcelona yeah (laughs) and all of these armies viewed themselves as very different from one another orwell was part of a communist organization that while being incredibly communist stood in opposition to the policies of Joe Stalin and the other communist organizations were Stalinist at the time. Mm-hmm. This meant that George Orwell's army didn't receive any Soviet weapons or funding or training, unlike the pro-Stalinist communists, yeah. which clearly a mistake on their part. Yeah. And not only that, because the left is collectively messy, the Stalinist communists, of course, accuse the non-Stalinist communists of being traitors to the cause and, of course, secret fascists. <laughs> yeah. CIA <laughs> ops. Yeah. If you've ever in, been in on Twitter, is the truest thing in the world. Yes. <laughs> if you don't agree with me on everything, you are offended. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Some and things never change. Never change. And none of these grew. And of course, they weren't either of those things. And yeah. this all came to a head during the Barcelona May Days of 1937, when anarchists, communists, and Republicans all took a break from fighting the fascists to instead fight anarchists, communists, and Republicans <laughs> that disagreed with them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it's just people in Barcelona killing people over interpretations of paragraphs of Karl Marx. Yeah, I like to complain about DSA being uh, needlessly pedantic and rules-oriented, but it's got nothing on this. Yeah, no. This is... <laughs> no, this is if yeah. the DSA had heavy machine guns <laughs> they follow God. their bylaws. 
<laughs> let us let us pray that never happens. <laughs> you will raise your hand in the Zoom call. <laughs> you you did not take part in stack properly. A death squad has been dispatched to your elbow, your home. <laughs> Up against the wall, comrade, for caucusing incorrectly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So Orwell had to flee Spain because of all this political infighting. He got shot through the neck by the fascists. He was in the hospital and the Stalinist communists declared him a Trotskyite, which was a killable offense if you were a Stalinist. <laughs> Did but, not like each other. No. Stalin and so George Orwell. You might say it came to a head later. Oh, ah, oh, you get it? Because he got, got stabbed in the head with a pickaxe. Got the head thing. Got the head thing. Got Ruined right his whole South American. <laughs> right? Motherfucking Joe Stalin. <sighs> you rob one bank with grenades and suddenly you think you can do whatever you want. <laughs> just, the, just the worst. Oh, and of course, nothing to do with the fact that Trotsky was the only openly Jewish member of the Russian Revolution. Nothing, nothing to do with that. There, <laughs> as we all know, under the Supreme Soviet, all peoples are equal. <laughs> Georgians, Russians. Other Russians, <laughs> some other Georgians, the right Siberians, <laughs> the right Siberians, no one else, but that's yeah. all there is. Yeah, th yeah, those are all of the people. <laughs> those are all of the people, indeed. Yeah. So George Orwell has to flee Spain with both the fascists and the communists hot on his heels. And that experience would contribute to George Orwell's lifelong distrust of state communism. Mm hmm. This distrust is, in fact, why the right can't read George Orwell. They know nothing about his life. They know nothing about leftist infighting. And they know nothing about his lifelong commitment to socialism and communism. They simply read that he didn't like Stalin and think he was a Jeff Bezos-esque capitalist fighting for the free market, <laughs> which, which couldn't be further from the truth. He but was... That is, uh, well, I, I think it's even like more basic than that. They just see all right so it what it ultimately gets to and i'm sure you'll get to this is that 1984 has scary government yeah and they don't have to read 1984 because it is in the cultural it's culturally known yeah. that 1984 is about scary government that's all they need to know yeah at all scary we don't government. like it orwell didn't like scary government thus he's one of us yeah he must be a libertarian <laughs> He must be a libertarian. 1984 cryptocurrency is coming. Oh, boy. <laughs> you, know you know it'll be here. Ingsoc coin. Yeah. Coming soon. <laughs> and fucking Ted Cruz will tweet about and it. And then do you will think so? This just popped into my head. So there's the whole bit in 1984 about the book written by Goldstein. Goldstein. Here's a crazy idea. It's a crazy idea. Don't. We don't have to think about it too hard. As we say in my day job, we don't have to solve this here. <laughs> Do you think there's like a bridge of casual anti-Semitism, scary Jewish name <laughs> being involved here? That can't be possible. That can't be possible. Can't George be possible. Orwell wasn't trying to comment on Jewish revolutionaries in any way. <laughs> and there, there's no need to misinterpret this at all. It's much like the rest of George Orwell's work. George Orwell, famed libertarian.
Okay. Yeah. So George Orwell. <laughs> yeah, George Orwell. Yeah. George Orwell, obviously a brilliant writer. A we, we covered that. Yeah, great writer. Yeah. Uh, left wing freedom fighter. Killed a lot of well, no, but he fought in Spain. Killed a lot of fascists <laughs> in Spain, but he really tried. Which is more than a lot of people in many left wing organizations today can say. <laughs> this is true. If you go up to a left winger in you know modern day America, and you say, uh, "Have you?" gone to spain and tried to kill nazis they're probably gonna say no but they will tell you all about their semester abroad they will tell you all about their semester abroad in canada where it's yeah. safe to travel and how, and how it wasn't bougie to have a semester abroad they're still members of the proletariat i <laughs> i didn't have a semester abroad I, <laughs> you, no. you didn't have a multiple years abroad I, I didn't have a semester abroad in one of the uh potentially most aristocratic cities on in the former british empire no <laughs> one day i will execute you as counter-revolutionary swine but uh, it's it's always gonna happen that's yeah. it's it's only a matter of you know it's like <clears throat> you're charting a person's growth on the left uh, you know, we all start off tankies. Yeah. All start off very big fans of, of Comrade Joe. Yep. And then eventually you're you're executed for being com- counter-revolutionary. There's just yep. no escaping. The full Leon Trotsky. The full Leon Trotsky. <laughs> exactly. I've got the glasses. I'm already on the way. You do have the glasses. Yeah. And you, like Leon Trotsky, are very interested in meeting minutes and general rules of order. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so the fact that that was my job for five years. <laughs> so this is worth saying at the top of any time you talk about Orwell is he sucked. And we're not defending him here. He was pretty <laughs> racist. He was incredibly homophobic. And he was, in general, the worst crime of all. Very, very British. There's always... A, uh, a a big old asterisk when you're describing most historical figures, uh, and yeah. that asterisk is for their time. Yeah, they were all right. Yeah, yeah. George Orwell was good in the 1930s British division of morality, which yes. is the T-ball of morality. <laughs> but he was swinging for the fences. Okay. Yeah, so. Just a quick rundown on Orwell, in case you didn't listen to the first bit. He wrote lots of things, things I would personally describe as pretty good, if you're into those sort of books. Yeah. But you probably know his two most seminal works, 1984 and Animal Farm. Those made the big bucks. They are both mm-hmm. bleak depictions of totalitarianism that someone made you read in high school. 1984, dark and gritty, dystopian drama, kind of the Christopher Nolan of the George Orwell. (laughs) I willingly, I willingly read 1984. That was not on the docket in rural Tennessee. They didn't let you read 1984. It wasn't that they didn't let me read it. It was like it wasn't on the reading list. You know what was on the reading list? Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Oh, hell yeah. And I as that was a freshman year book, I think. And uh, it was, you know, in an English class and they're saying, oh, yeah, you, know, you got to write a report. You got it. No, it wasn't that. It was you had to keep a reading journal <laughs> and you had to like write down your thoughts about you know, all the bits in there. And I just didn't do it. And like the teacher, you know, she said, why aren't you doing this? I go, because it's Harry Potter. <laughs> I have and, no I, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, 
I'm 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 reading Brave New World in 1984 because my brother said I should, and he's better at this. And she was like, "Yeah, all right, <laughs> sure." Yeah, just was not graded on that assignment. <laughs> oh, and if, they, like, if there is a, I, you were like, "I am a Jewish teenager in Smyrna, Tennessee, and these goblins feel a little racist." Well, it wasn't even that; it was that her husband was Jewish. So I got away with all that because if there is a Jewish conspiracy, it's that you can get a lot of you can get away with a lot of bullshit if you remind someone of their friend of their family member. Mm. And uh, not to play up stereotypes, but yeah, the, the true cabal is not having to write your book reports yeah, or go on the mile run in <laughs> in, in PE because I uh, the. The driver's ed teacher went to my synagogue, so he, uh, <laughs> he, he just let me drive whenever there was a mile run. That's really funny. Yep. <laughs> just didn't want to fucking run. Yeah. That is that is exactly what the protocols of the elders of Zion is about. Not that doing is. the mile. <laughs> exactly. Don't do the mile run. Yeah. It's bullshit. It's for the goyim. <laughs> <laughs> That's getting put in a book of your aphorisms when you make it big as a writer. <laughs> Aaron's writing advice, don't do the mile run, it's for the goyim. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, uh, those well, are books um, that most people will have to read yeah. in high school. 1984, Grim, Dystopian, the Christopher Nolan of George Orwell. Yeah. Animal Farm, a fable about mm-hmm. animals. The Aesop Nothing of else. the George Orwell catalog. It's about nothing else. Just about animals. Just about animals. Both are pretty good if you're into that sort of thing, as uh, as was my review earlier. Read them if you want. <laughs> yeah. But what I matters, will give. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just what matters to us about both those books is that they're fucking adored by fascists, though. Did you? Have, are you not aware of the fascists' love for both of those books? Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh oh, there we go. All there right. There we go. We're back. <laughs> Portland infrastructure. Yeah. The best. Little Beirut. So <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I, I think I, I caught they were a door. Yeah. Right. Um, so cutting this in now. Yep. But what matters to us is that both those books are fucking adored by fascists. Like every fascist. Google your least favorite conservative commentator and just start plugging Orwell words into the Google search and you'll find a million hits. They quote tweet George like he was the fucking messiah. (laughs) Here's a question. Uh, And I ask this because I honestly don't know that I I, I've heard it. What has has Jordan Peterson leaned on George Orwell? I don't Do you know, know the answer to that, but I'm sure he has. It strikes me as something that would that would he would either really embrace or reject because he's like, no, Orwell was probably decadent and depraved because he was he was an intellectual. Yep, here's a here's the Jordan Peterson podcast. George Orwell discuss Jordan Peterson discusses George Orwell. Ah, Jordan Maybe Peterson we, on Orwell's Wagon Pier. Yeah, he he yeah, fucking yeah. likes the guy. Yeah, of course he does. He doesn't have a goddamn brain in his brain. <laughs> no, no brain in that brain. No brain in that brain. Not a damn cell. Smooth brain orb. Yep, complete marble. 
That's mm-hmm. what happens when you only eat meat. That's, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yep. So the question is, where the fuck do conservatives learn to love George Orwell? I think it's because they might, like, genuinely have some common ground that's worth discussing. Okay. Um, first off, Orwell really dislikes Soviet-style communism, which yep. is fair, because it almost killed him. It almost killed a lot of people, and killed a lot of people. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. He had a personal vendetta after being shot through the neck, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that tends to and do then- it. And then chased out of Spain by Soviet communists. Yeah. That happened to me in Spain. Yeah. Uh, we were having a, a, a meeting for one of my clients. And, uh, you know, they were, they were talking about a spec. <laughs> and it got heated. And so one chair of a group shot another chair through the neck. And that the guy who shot the other guy had to flee. And so that, you know, that delayed the spec release for quite a while because... Well, someone got shot in the neck, and, uh, and you came out against the spec altogether, and will soon be murdered in Mexico with an ice pick. Exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah, you understand. Exactly. Uh, that. It's <laughs> a side note. I got a new PC recently, and it, on the front of the PC, it has USB two. It has two USB twos labeled, and a USB three are the things that are written under it. And I was like, you know who'd know a lot about this? What? It's got USB 2? Yeah, it's got two USB 2s and one USB 3. Why? This is a new PC, right? Yep, brand new. Interesting. Is it, wait, is it, does it have like a, a USB C port, the, the oval one? No. Who manufactured your PC? Um, Skytech. The hell is Skytech? it's not an indication that the pc is is shit by any means it's just like three three usb three is faster yeah i only got one of them i don't know why you only got one that's odd my my like six-year-old motherboard has more p more usb three slots (laughs) i have a bunch of them on the back i only have two i only have one of them on the front oh you're talking about the front okay yeah yeah, well, yeah, so the, like the, the thing with that, and listeners, this is now a tech hardware <laughs> podcast, is like the the, the front bit uh, is, gen- it, it, in my experience of like, uh, what, 11 years of building PCs now, uh, the front plugs are incredibly easy to fuck up. Uh, like I, <clears throat> I occasionally, whenever I install new hardware or put in a new motherboard, will have the front slots working correctly, but only occasionally. <laughs> and I, it's like something to, anyway, so my hot, I always go with the stuff in the back. That's always better. Because uh, yeah. that's, that's like generally less, less cable management between the stuff in the front to, to the motherboard than it is like directly into the motherboard. You have exactly as many opinions on this as I hoped you would. <laughs> <laughs> I also saw in your specs that you got NVMe a one terabyte drive. Yes. 
So that's that you, you're going to be just blasting through stuff. You're going to load Absolutely. up Cyberpunk 2077 in seconds. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's good shit. I've got Going from uh, a six year old laptop to this. Is, <laughs> it's like, oh, I can function now. A cart to a Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> So, Orwell hates Soviet communists. Yeah, Orwell um, would be USB 3. Absolutely. Soviet communists would be, like, one. <laughs> a, a loose HDMI cable. <laughs> a loose HDMI cord, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, if Orwell hates communists, he no one hates communists as much as conservatives. It's the central point of conservative yeah. ideology. I would also say uh, no one hates communists as much as conservatives and also communists with a slightly different interpretation of communism. That's true. Yeah. Yep. George Orwell falls into that category. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So animal farm 1984 are just basically like sub tweets to Joseph Stalin <laughs> and conservatives are really into that. Yeah. Uh, for example, the anti-communist organization, the John Birch society, uh, yeah. Guys who fuck a lot have a long-standing <laughs> love affair with George Orwell. They uh, recently tweeted out the book. They give it to their initiates. They do have common ground there. Why did they tweet it out? Uh, what context? Was this a mask thing? It was just like a it was a loose Orwell tweet. They were like, the government's becoming big brother. Read 1984. They have nothing else to do, Eric. Were, were you... And uh, I, I, This is going to sound old man yells at, at clouds, so I apologize <laughs> in advance. Were you conscious during the, the, the Patriot Act? Like when it was being discussed and voted on? Oh, absolutely not. I was like seven. Okay. All right. So, yeah, you were not a human. Uh, so, like, I remember when that thing was coming into power, or coming into, into debate, and... I, <laughs> Like I I I I I'm hesitant to say it, but I think that was like the the last time that you could really invoke Big Brother is watching you. Like when you you make the jump from a society that does not legislate that level of observation in the open to we are paying very close attention to everything you do and now it is baked in to society and uh i i like i i was very much in that well this is actually orwell thing uh and then like i went yeah this was when i was doing my very very bougie semester abroad in canterbury and uh, i remember there were a couple of like anti anti-bush protests there because that was also in year two of the Iraq war. No, 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 no. It was later than that. Uh, anyway, it was during the Iraq war. And uh, that, you know, you, you would see artistic renderings of Bush as big brother. Yeah. And yeah. It... Yeah. The, that, that really was like the last time that you could rant about. Now you can rant about tech companies being big brother, but it's it's not the same no, like doesn't have the it's same not desires. good like it's and it should be ranted about but the, the you know it's the distinct the distinction between 
the state monitoring everything citizens do and the market monitoring everything that citizens do needs to be upheld. And like, that is a significant distinction. Yeah. Um, Cause as of yet, a, Amazon can't murder me in my home. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to in Minecraft guillotine the state than it is in Minecraft to guillotine the marketplace. Yeah. 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 So the shared hatred of communism. The second thing I think that we're getting into a little bit here is that conservatives also really say they hate censorship. We won't get into whether they do or not yet. No, they, they spoiler, really they don't. They, yeah, yeah, they, they don't. don't. But and like they see 1984's government policing your thoughts, and they're like, that was bad hypothetically. <laughs> um famed putch doer, Josh Hawley. Mm. When his book deal was canceled, was said, quote, <laughs> That's right. This could not be more Orwellian. Let me be clear this is not just a contract dispute. This is a direct assault on the First Amendment. We'll see you in court. Whatever happened with that? <laughs> I, don't think they, I don't think he made them publish his book because that's not how uh, yeah. capitalism works. Shocking. Famed Shocking. capitalist Josh Hawley. <laughs> Shocking. They don't have to publish your book. They don't have to. Uh, they have to publish my book, and they will. Yeah, it will they be illegal will. to not publish. The, the, the Rat Manifesto <laughs> will see the light of day. And at the top, there will be a quote from my friend who has seen a severed head. And that <laughs> quote will be, this is unsettling. Jesus Christ. <laughs> that, that is his like little epitaph, like in ancient Greek. <laughs> Like <laughs> John, who has seen a severed head. <laughs> the third thing I think the conservatives pair with Orwell is that they fear like social and political reprisal by your friends and neighbors. A big mm. element of 1984 is being betrayed by someone he trusts in his community. Yep. And that's cancel culture. But uh, <laughs> I'm really trying to get through this section where I pretend they have something in common. Um, for instance, <laughs> well, I, I think the point that you're making is like everything that they do is it, it, that they have quote unquote on common is so superficial. It's like rice paper layer. Yeah, it's it's a very thin. Yeah, Charlie Kirk touches on this when he mm. founder of Turning Point USA and did, famed did, whitest man alive. <laughs> did you see what Charlie Kirk had to say about the Super Bowl? No, did he have something uh, to say about the Super Bowl? He did. He said something to the effect that the halftime show, which I did not see, so I have no idea even who was doing it, uh, was unleashing sexual anarchy to, <laughs> to the United States. He hit us with the sweet sexual anarchy quote again. He loves he did. that. <laughs> he did. He's, he hit it with the, the sexual anarchy from the NFL. What does that mean? I don't know. It means I, I was well. I was texting Sounds a friend. I was awesome, like, but what does it mean? Well, I was like, there are two options for it. Option one is that there was a depraved orgy on stage in the middle of the field. Option two was that it was someone other than the Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah, those are the two options. <laughs> and that's the only explanation for Charlie Clerk 
man with a small face to <laughs> say that there was sexual anarchy in the halftime show. Ooh, little does Charlie Kirk know that sexual anarchy is just spending 15 minutes before any sexual encounter voting on how to vote about a safe word. <laughs> anarchy! Having a thorough discussion with motions. Yeah. <laughs> if you refer to subsection 6B of paragraph uh, A. Gives another uh, another meaning to the term consent agenda. Oh my god. You're welcome. <laughs> and, and the truly feared part of sexual anarchy, the homosexual agenda. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's been tabled for far too long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, he said of cancel culture, quote, why don't they just call it the Ministry of Truth and just get it over with? It's as if 1984 is just the left's instruction manual at this point, end quote. Wait, so there's an instruction manual in 1984. Yes. Goldstein's book. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is, that is an instruction manual. <laughs> yeah. Based on uh, Leon Trotsky's book. But, yep. um, yeah. So while these quotes were like chosen at random, like I said, you can find anyone like them. We did this with Jordan Peterson. Just plug your favorite yeah. right wing commentator in and then start throwing out words like Orwell or Doublethink or Thought yeah. Police. And you'll just like find endless lists of spewed garbage. Um, Do you want to see? I, I have an exhibit to bring to the court. <laughs> Uh, I so there's a YouTube channel I recently discovered called Folding Ideas, and it's really good. It's a solid channel. He's if you if you're on the internet, you probably saw recently. This is dating the podcast. God knows when this is going to be released, but it, there was a, a a video called "The Problem with In or Line Goes Up: The Problem with NFTs." I think, and it's that guy. So he did a, a video a while ago about geocentrism and there is a like a hardcore catholic traditionalist catholic uh group that put out some weird documentary about geocentrism Fuck and oh basically God, like <laughs> basically duped people like lawrence krauss who's a physicist uh, uh, into providing quotes that were edited to appear like he was a closet geocentrist Oh, no. uh, they they duped Kate Mulgrew of Star Trek Voyager into providing voiceover for part of it. Famed person who knows a lot about space, someone who was on Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, she was a captain on Star Trek. So you got to know a lot because then you, you have to go, oh, that's a tachyon storm. That, that you, is why um, William Shatner got taken to space with fucking Bezos. God, also man. knows a lot about space. <laughs> We're we're a fucking horrible species. We <laughs> yeah. should never have gotten to this point. Nope. Um, anyway, so the, these geocentrists uh, were claiming that they were being targeted by the thought police. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I like any 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 group of Catholics who has the sheer chutzpah to claim that they are the target of a massive internationalist conspiracy. <laughs> 
Oh, and man. at some at multiple points in this video, uh, Dan Olson, the guy who runs Folding Ideas, splices in a clip of a dude who's re- who's in this little cadre, saying, "I've watched the footage multiple times. At no point is this about the Jews." <laughs> and it's like you're talking, you're 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 showing what this is about. You don't yeah. like the Jews. Yep, yep, yep. The 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 sub the, the subtitle of Catholicism. We really don't like the Jews. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like the people who uh, despise Vatican II. Part of that is because they really don't like the Jews. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the the current Catholic religion too Jewish. It's too tolerant. Yeah. <laughs> oh Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example because I find it very odd that people like that and Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump Jr. Yep. all choose a socialist freedom fighter anti-imperialist. Yep pretty effeminate british man as one of the like modern <laughs> forefathers of the right there is no ma- outright masculine british man if you if you say there is there you're probably talking about a scottish man that, that's probably fair <laughs> and they will be upset that you referred to them as british despite that being technically correct when i think of masculine britishness i only think of gordon ramsay and he is in fact scottish <laughs> oh i didn't know that is he scottish yeah oh Where's he from? I don't know. Somewhere oh. in Scotland. Well, <laughs> that's implied. Thank you, Shark. You're really showing some good, <laughs> some good journalism. Nailing the journalism. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we were getting that Pulitzer. This is this is it. Oh yeah. So it's he's just a weird choice, and yeah. I think it's because, like you're saying. It's like a there's just enough rice paper, like thin logic with liking Orwell that they don't have to read. They just have to read like the Sparks Notes of 1984. Yeah. And it sounds like conservative propaganda. Yeah. A lot of books do. Yeah. Like if you in uh, you can make this argument for Star Wars, right? Uh, There are there there are lines in Star Wars and I'm not saying Star Wars is a deep genre it's there's a story a series it's not it is i love it i love the the the, the three movies some of the books and the mandalorian uh there is one good, there is one good star trek movie go fuck yourself star wars, whatever there are three good star wars movies and you can rot in hell <laughs> but there's a line in that where it's like oh the emperor's nationalized no it's not even in the movie is it it's like in one of the deleted scenes so, if you watch the deleted scenes of Star Wars and just wait, this is a preview because listeners, because uh, I'm gonna have a friend on for one of our episodes, and he and I are deep Star Wars nerds. And one of the deleted scenes is between Biggs and Luke. And Biggs, who you may know, is the guy who Luke says that he's good friends with in the, the A New Hope and then gets blown up by Darth Vader. Uh, Biggs and Luke are on Tatooine, and Biggs is talking about joining up with the Rebellion, and Luke goes, oh, why? And Biggs is like, well, the Emperor is nationalizing industry in the inner rims. (laughs) 
So he can read certain elements as like this is a hyper weird conservative thing when in fact it was George Lucas uh, taking elements of sci-fi you know, serials uh, and then samurai movies and also him really disliking the Vietnam War and viewing America as the Galactic Empire. Famed right-wing opinion. Famed right-wing opinion, yeah. <laughs> Oh, an Aaron's Star Wars corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We gotta come up with some good, some good theme music. <laughs> so I think it's worth kind of tackling a few of the like commonalities of conservatism and reading the sparksness of George Orwell. Yep. And just like talking about. I think they twist him in ways that are very indicative of how they twist everything. Twist him like a pretzel. Exactly. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is Turning Point USA and anti-communism. And, sure. Or no, um, the John Birch Society and anti-communism and George Even Orwell. Better. Yeah. From George Orwell's essay, Why I Write, an essay famously about why he wrote things. So this before we get into that, yeah. do you want to introduce the John Birch Society Oh yeah. And besides totally. uh, men who totally fuck, which I believe is on their website. Yes. So <laughs> if you're wondering about the John Birch Society, I would ask you uh, one question. Do you hate things? <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if you hate a thing, like just anything chosen at random, it's probably the fault of the John Birch Society. <laughs> they, they were a group of incredibly wealthy very waspy weirdos <laughs> who got together to fight communism but instead just kind of created the rotary club and some and the chamber of commerce and phyllis schlafly and are kind of the reason we're totally fucked now think tanks yeah yeah they're <laughs> like the first real fascist american think tank yeah. And they just begin to dominate like all of American politics. They're why like Texas school boards have like an anti-evolution bend. Every school board yeah. across. It's not just what ha so I mean you you shark you probably know but there there's the because of the way our country is uniquely fucked. Uh the the corridor of like Dallas Fort Worth and another chunk of Texas is so monumentally impactful to the way textbooks are written mm -hmm. that textbook writers uh, will write their books to appeal to that school, that school district. Yeah, which, so if you've ever read, like, the Civil War was about states' rights. Yeah. It's because of that. Yeah. Um, my, what in you know, having done part of my education, South, I heard that a significant amount. Um, and then I also, so I had a biology teacher and I think it was a sophomore. It was a sophomore in uh, Tennessee. And we, <laughs> he, it was the, 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 the evolution unit. And he got up in front of the class and he goes, look, I don't want to teach this, but I have to. And Holy I don't shit. believe it. And I'm not asking you to believe it. And one of the guys in the class who I'm, I, I'm not going to say good friends with, 
because I don't talk to him all that often, but like we, we get along fine and like we're friends. Uh, but at that time, he was a very, very big Southern Baptist, and he started booing at the mention of evolution. And that was the first of many times I've slapped someone upside the head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that is to a large extent the fault of the John Birch Society. Exactly, because you have this such a huge impact on a district that buys so many te- textbooks that it becomes like the 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 fulcrum of these a lot of school books across the nation because manufacturer like textbook editors are not going to create books for different market markets because that's from a financial perspective insane yeah, and like five of the ten of the like eight most populous cities in America are in Texas or something. It's something like that. It's, it's so, I mean, it's a fair amount. Like you get Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Houston, Austin. Like, yeah, yeah. And like San Antonio is not big, but it's got a weird amount of influence despite its size. Yeah. And like the John Birch Society encouraged people in the fifties to run for the school board in yeah. those places, and they've dominated the school board elections ever since. Yeah, pushing like a weird hardline anti-communist evangelical Christian. And I would, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna implore our listeners here. I know there is a steadfast strain of anti-electoralism, and like we're not gonna take part in the broken society and in the left. But I ask you if you ever, ever plan or am not or are not overtly opposed to having children i would implore you to run for school board <laughs> in your in your area because you you can have you can try to counter this yeah you can have actual- a, the, the john burr side is thought as you can have a weirdly large effect yeah and uh anti yeah there's something to be said about you know not buying into the system and all that, but uh, you, you live in you live in the country. <laughs> the the if shit you that run, you can... if you run for mayor up against the wall, comrade. But school board. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a question for you: If I ran for mayor of Redacted, yeah. and as part of my platform, I said uh, I'm going to encourage more public transit by instituting my one in five policy the policy is simple on a rotating basis we will blow up every fifth car and it will be completely at random (laughs) but we will blow up every fifth car am i still up against the wall i mean after the current mayor of portland (laughs) whose platform is worse than that (laughs) which is that's a low bar. <laughs> His platform is, I just want to be reelected. Let me go to dinner in the Pearl District. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So, or alternately, I, let me order a burger at a sushi restaurant like a giant fucking nerd. Did he do that? <laughs> yes, he did. What a loser. I, I, I don't think it. No, the, the Pearl District is the one that Koska yelled at him. There was another one where he was ordering a burger at a sushi restaurant and uh, someone saw him and started yelling at him and he got like, 
Holy shit. About it. There's a lot to Uh-oh. unpack there about his psychology. It's fucking internet. This. There we go. Okay. Okay. So. Zoom is telling my telling me that my internet connection is unstable. Dang. <laughs> I, I understand that. Yeah. Thank you, Zoom. I, I get instability. <laughs> I too am unstable. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So from George Orwell's essay, Why I Write, famously yep. about why he wrote things, um, quote, every line of serious work I have written since 1936 has been written directly or indirectly against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism, as I understand it. It seems to me nonsense in a period like our own to think that one can avoid writing of such subjects. Everyone writes of them in one guise or another. It is simply a question of which side one takes and what approach one follows. That doesn't sound like something the John Birch Society would like. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. I, I do. I think like, though, if there is a recurring thesis for our podcast, it's right there in the name. It's that the right can't, can't read. read. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think like Orwell is probably the most explicit yeah evidence of that because like you know if you we started off with jesus and there's a lot of interpretation there and there's like what is actually the source of what Mm -hmm. the sermons were and like springsteen you know he might there's room for interpretation in music i mean i think it's pretty obvious but he seems good but he is from new jersey he is is from new jersey exactly and there's there's such a thing of like music being not necessarily an like a a, an intellectual pursuit but an emotional one because of like the yada 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 or uh you know so far you know in in a lot of our episodes we've touched on more multimedia aspects be it like visual or auditory or experiential yeah. uh, i i think like orwell is very straight up can't read yeah because he's been he's one of the old what i love about him is he's one of the only people who spent his whole life being like listen here motherfuckers here's what i mean yeah Which yeah is exactly. really like hard to come across yeah it's it's the opposite of david lynch yeah <laughs> who spent his whole life being like listen here motherfuckers here's what i don't mean yeah well that's not even that it's like david lynch is listen here motherfuckers i'm not gonna talk about yeah let's talk yeah. about carpentry here's what i'm doing right now with carpentry <laughs> make a movie about a guy on a road trip who murders women feminists <laughs> somehow um it's a deep david lynch cut for those who don't <laughs> yeah he, he's a good dude uh, he's I like I like that Eraserhead is basically him being channeling his uh, deep unwillingness to be a dad into a movie. He is a lot. He is a he is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the fact that like the John Birch Society loves George Orwell, despite him objectively saying that he's a socialist, gets into two things I find really interesting about the brainworm inflicted members of our community on the right wing um what happens when you take ivermectin yeah it doesn't cure the brainworms it gives you it the gives brainworms. You, it gives you the brainworms yeah the first is that they clearly have like a basic misunderstanding of left-wing politics yep 
I think what happens there is that like the farther you get to the right, I think the more you get the same. I when I think of right wing governments, they're all kind of the same government. Okay. Sure. Like, is there it's a difference of degree in like Mussolini's Italy and Hitler's Germany and Pinochet. Thatcher in England. Yeah. But it's like a similar, they're trying to create the same hierarchy, right? Yeah. And I think that they think the left works the same way, which is the farther you get left, the more you get like Joseph Stalin. But if you don't like Joseph Stalin, you're not on the left. Yeah. And I, you know, I think part of that is that in a sense, this is to the less credit, but also to its detraction. A lot of leftists, and the fact that I have to refer to it as theory <laughs> really says it all. Like there, it, it's it's incredibly hard to get any kind of firsthand account of like what like Bakunin or Marx were envisioning to the point where like Bakunin is just a messy bitch who was basically just writing his high school drama in a live journal, but. <laughs> in the form of books yeah, and yes. Marx felt that he could not express himself without obtuse formulas. And then you have Trotsky who, in order to make Marx accessible and it's capital down to like 50 pages that is still not accessible. And uh, I, it, you get all of that. That is like the, the, the first hand, right? And then you have people like Utah Phillips or, or Billy Bragg. Mm-hmm. who are uh, actively trying to communicate these things to vast numbers of people and can only do that by, well, like as Utah Phillips said, like uh, paraphrasing, how many, how many miles must a white dove sing when the, the birds breezing? There's a big difference between that and dump the bosses off your back. Yeah. And uh, you don't get a lot of people by either of those messages because, uh, you know, like Bob Dylan in his folk days was saying the right things, but was pretty inaccessible to people who were not middle class, white or, you know, white adjacent folks in the folk scene already. Mm -hmm. And then dump the bosses off your back doesn't really work unless you're in industry at the time and since then has been buried to the point where uh you know i share it to people at work and their reactions are like is this just what you do do you just look up old angry people with guitars and i go yes why aren't you (laughs) and you know there's there's something to be said about the right uh coalescing to that degree where you can have you know, people like Reagan or Thatcher or Trump or Mussolini or all basically saying the same message and going by the same talking points like like they're on Fox News. And then the left, which is what I think you're getting at with like, it's a, a very varied array being hard to get into. Yeah. And I think that's because like, if you look at if you take like two left-wing governments and you look at like Stalin's Russia and the current autonomous zone in Rojava and the Ukrainian anarchists during the Russian revolution, 
they're as different from one another as any world government is today. Yeah, I would say more so. Yeah. Like I've got friends in Kiev right now and like over New Year's, they were sending me pictures of what they were doing. And there was like a I think it was their their current president uh, was on TV delivering some kind of address, but you couldn't make out his face. So it was just this big white blob over a suit. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) I was texting him, my friend. I was like, oh, is that your 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 guest? The uh, the faceless embodiment of world government. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're all like fucking. The they all same. dress the yeah. same. They all say basically the same things. Yeah, we have a, we actually have a quote about this later on. But hey, um, hey. <laughs> yeah. and I think that that is like one of the key misunderstandings is that like the right is creating hierarchy. So yeah. as it gets farther right, it becomes clearer, and the left is creating kind of wildly dispersed theory ranging from strict hierarchy like Stalinism to absolute nonsense like anarcho-primitivism. But but that sort of runs the whole gamut of what you could think a political structure should be. It marshes all the way out. Yeah. And I think if you're on the right wing, you just can't fucking imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. But even to like, you know, like if you're talking to a family member who is not obsessed with this and you're trying to communicate yeah. ideas like it's it it's hard to get to the point without like spending two hours defining terms <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lot easier to appeal to lizard brain yeah make america great again <laughs> make america great again that it is well we need to define a non-hierarchical structure that encourages d- decision making but also individual autonomy in order yeah. to greatly increase equity and it's like dump the bosses off your back yeah <laughs> yep nice stop driving for uber being the modern version of that. <laughs> yes <laughs> oh. the so either they don't get that part of leftism even though i think they probably do because the quotes by Orwell are very clear, and I'm sure they've yeah. Googled his fucking name at least one time. Yeah. There's a second, more insidious option about why the right doesn't understand, people like the John Birch Society don't understand George Orwell's anti-communism, and it's that they're lying. No. No. No, it couldn't be, right? That's absurd. Yeah, couldn't possibly be especially um i wouldn't have an example about the cia <laughs> you mean the fine liars the the upstanding bastion of national security the, C- yeah. the central intelligence agency yeah the the cia producers of the cartoon animal farm have you seen the cartoon version I feel like I have, but I might just be mixing it up with the cartoon, the, the Garfield cartoon show. <laughs> and I'm legitimately not sure. Because <laughs> the I know Animal Farm did not have the duck with with the floaty thing. Probably not, no. <laughs> Ooh. I don't know if I've seen that, no. Yeah, so it's like a old version of the animal farm cartoon Mm. that was made in the 50s and it was made by the cia 
and the British government. So this is when when did it, when was Animal Farm published? I don't actually know the answer to that in all of my Orwell research. This is horrible. <laughs> this is a Shonda. What so, what a what, uh, 19, a, sh- what a Shonda. Nineteen forty-five. 1945. So this is pretty soon after it was published. Yeah. It came like, out with a cartoon. Yeah. yeah. And um, so one of the weird facts about Orwell's life is that his licensing, his intellectual property is a complete and utter fucking disaster. Yeah. Because when he was dying, he married a woman kind of on a whim as he was losing his mind mm-hmm. and was just like, hey, you'll have all this money marry me and she was like sure and so when he died she basically auctioned his intellectual property off to the highest bidder a lot (laughs) so there's sort of no creative control over what happens with george orwell shit after george orwell kicks the bucket all right interesting interesting yeah (laughs) that that happens a lot uh eh, yeah that happens a lot I so I'm 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 looking up so I'm curious because I did a uh I had an internship for an agency that handled a lot of these like mega estates in England and I don't know if it was if they handled Orwell or not, but mm. I it, so it makes sense that there's always gonna be like <laughs> representation is always a clusterfuck. Uh yeah. you you yeah, go ahead. I, I'm not going to take us down a route of talking about Lord of the Rings and IP rate IP rights, though I really want to. Oh, that are now owned by Amazon. Moving on. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like they do some weird moves, like making old major uh, a Winston Churchill s character. They change the whole ending. They make the film like rabidly more anti-communist than even the anti-Stalinist book was. Mm. And they do this because they want it to be propaganda. And also Animal Farm is kind of a nuanced thing that draws on Mike Tolstoy and the Kronstadt Rebellion and all the other things from Russian history. And the CIA wants to make a mass market film that can hate anti-communism and appeal to people who watch Disney movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when this happens the cia like just clearly lies about orwell's intention in writing the book over and over and over again from the making to the publicity everything about it and this might be what people like the john birch society are doing and other folks when they disingenuously quote orwell against socialism maybe they're lying (laughs) it sounds crazy the jury is still out. <laughs> there is a reasonable doubt in one of the jurors' minds. And <laughs> thus, as judge, I'm going to have to declare a mistrial. Well, I have, a, I have another option, which okay. is that, um, so if they're not lying and they think George Orwell hating Stalin makes him a right-wing icon, my pitch here is that they also have to accept Trotsky as a right-wing icon. (laughs) He wrote a book that was very critical of the Russian Revolution. I didn't even have to make it about pigs. (laughs) 
right wing icon Leon Trotsky. That's my pitch. <laughs> He can like be the it. new poster child for the John Birch Society. Just a big fuck off portrait of Leon <laughs> Trotsky. <laughs> right at the entrance of CPAC this year. Just a huge fucking. <laughs> well, here's the thing is like, do you really think a lot of people who would willingly go to CPAC would know who Trotsky was? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> and that kind of goes into what we're talking about earlier of like it, it, it's it's a mire yeah <laughs> it's a, a quagmire if you will to get into like that it, it that depth of like knowing who snowball is supposed to represent yeah in an animal farm especially if like you you know if you're an average american in the american education system you're not gonna get into that level of detail in in talking about animal farm if you even read it if you just don't look at like a, a recap a, a synopsis of the thing in some other like a little primer book or something watch the 1950s cia cartoon watch the 1950s cia cartoon exactly or like fuck we we kind of we we read bits this is somewhat related gives you kind of an example of american education from when i was going through it but like when we were going through uh chaucer in my senior year of high school we read like a couple of the tales from canterbury tales and then watched a night's tale Oh, which has yes. nothing to do with Chaucer at all. Chaucer is a character in that movie, and <laughs> how dare you slander the good name of Heath Ledger? <laughs> <laughs> oh but god, that's like, so funny. You're coming up in the system, you're not going to know who these people are unless you are a, are a nerd who <laughs> goes off and reads these things by themselves. Yeah. yeah. And then and I think that's quizzes what they... for their classmates in study hall. And then they're asked, why are you doing this? And you say, well, because it's fun. And they say, don't you watch sports? And you say, I watch baseball. And I'm like, why? And you say, well, because it's fun and my family likes it. And they're like, but I thought your family is divorced and shattered. And you say, well, yeah, sure. But it's still, let's talk about the, 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 the Egyptian gods some more. And oh, God, just sorry, what happened? <laughs> Now they know what you were doing while you weren't doing the mile run. <laughs> <laughs> Reading books about Egyptian mythology. <laughs> Why I like David Lynch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think like that's one way the right twist stuff is either they they're like preying on, like you're saying, this lack of education or this lack of knowledge on a topic to just intentionally lie knowing that it's a lie. Yeah. This is the most obvious form of manipulation. One might even call it Orwellian. <laughs> <laughs> if one were so inclined. Yeah. Oh, there is a second piece that Josh Holly quote we talked about earlier mm -hmm. that I also want to circle around back to here, All which right. is that uh, conservatives don't fucking get what Orwell's saying about government censorship and I think it says a lot about how they interact with a concept like censorship conservatives okay. interact with a concept like censorship Holly's talking about the quote being cancelled by a publisher he calls that Orwellian 
Orwell had a lot of books rejected. He had a lot of his material censored, but he was not one to like harp on this stuff. Cause he's a writer. Yes. Cause and that's it's like, what if you're a writer, is. yeah, sure. Go ahead. And, um, Orwell was also a really firm believer in facing consequences for speech. Okay. Consequenceless speech is in some ways the main boogeyman of 1984. In the article I shared with you by Billy Bragg about how, like, shut the fuck up about cancel culture. I'm Billy Bragg. I'm the coolest person ever. Shut the fuck up. Is definitely. He he is like. So for. All right. Listeners who. Let me give you. Can I. Can I tell you about my exposure to Billy Bragg? Absolutely. All right. So when I was when I was a wee lad, (laughs) I was watching an episode of Saturday Night Live and the musical guests on this episode of Saturday Night Live were Rage Against the Machine. They were being introduced by, I think it was, shit, who was it? I think it was Forbes. Like one of the big like financial dudes. And I'm watching this, right? And I, the guy goes up and he goes, Rage Against the Machine. And my brother walks by my room and he goes, oh, that's funny. And I go, well, what's funny about that? And he goes, well, because it's Rage Against the Machine and <laughs> him. And I was like, I don't get it. And he goes, there, he's the guy that they don't like. And he's, <laughs> he's introducing the, rage, the aforementioned <laughs> machine. He, he is the he is the machine that they are raging against. And I was like, oh. And then I thought about all the lyrics and I was like, I get it now. I guess I like communism. <laughs> And so I started listening to a lot of like this stuff that was related to Rage Against the Machine. And this was in not like the early days of the Internet by any means, but this was like early 2000s. So there was stuff like Yahoo Music just putting out radio stations from all across the country that you could easily find. So I listened to Tom Morello and Serge Tankian's uh, music show of it was called the axis of justice and they would have like labor organizers on, they would have, uh, it it would be the equivalent of having water protectors on a, like a, 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 a a mainstream show. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And they, Morello would spotlight a song. Both of them would spotlight a song every, every episode. And one of the episodes, Tom Morello focused on uh, a Billy Bragg song called My Youngest Son Came Home Today. And it was, you know, the song about someone who like sees their son being brought home from war in a coffin. Mm. And it was like just this, like I'm listening to it while I am playing Microsoft Combat Flight Simulator. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sitting there like, Oh shit, this is heavy. <laughs> and so from that point on, like I knew who Billy Bragg was. And when you sent me your your notes for this this episode, I saw Billy Bragg and I was like, oh fuck. And paired with cancel culture, I'm like, oh fuck no. <laughs> like, oh no, don't ruin <laughs> Billy Bragg. <laughs> yeah. And so luckily, no, Billy Bragg is pure. He is yeah. uh like Bruce Springsteen is good. Like he's a good dude who who just is from New Jersey. So that's everything that you have to say. Billy Bragg is from the north of England. 
Yes. And has been involved in labor politics, both party and actual like economic standards for his entire life. And is just a fucking mensch. Yeah. Very cool guy. Yeah. And in the article I sent you, he does this great thing where he talks about walking by the BBC where George Orwell was employed and his wife was employed in the propaganda department. Um, but literally, but yep. and there's this quote that is next to a George Orwell statue outside the BBC, which is if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. And it's a good quote. It's yeah. kind of pablum, but it's it's a thing you can say. Yeah. And sure. Billy Bragg talks about in the article how the right wing applies that to cancel culture in a way that's disingenuous. The, shocking yeah <laughs> shocking that that would happen yeah and he cites the example in 1984 of two plus two equals five being a government statement yeah and he says that the thing the point orwell's making is not that you should have the right to think two plus two equals five but that you should be able to disagree with that as loud as possible yeah and the bemoaning cancel culture or is bemoaning disagreement. Yep. Which is the great Billy Bragg thing to say. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the, he's, there is, there are f- fewer people aside from like Neil Young, uh, Phil Oaks when he was, you know, alive, Utah Phillips. Uh, they, like there, there is a strain of pure, like solid people with like the right ideas and like you know i i don't like pete seeger's music but he had the right ideas and i know everyone i'm saying is you know white man but uh that's well, because we'll i am kendrick lamar for the youth yeah no kendrick lamar uh what uh donald glover is glover is fucking solid too yeah um most deaf tom morello tom morello but it, Point being, uh, like Billy Bragg is just one of these guys who has like the he's on the right fucking side. Yeah. Every time I think he was like really involved in Occupy London nice. when that was going on. And yeah, dude, he's just he's aces. Yeah. Listen to Billy Bragg. Everyone should listen to Billy Bragg. I, one of my one of my fi- one of my favorite little little impulse buys I bought was like this big career anthology of billy bragg songs nice that was like from when he was doing pop music early on his career to like recently when he was like singing songs about how like you know trump's wall is a horrible thing but uh yeah it's like yeah this is bragg's one of those guys who knows how to connect with people from different economic backgrounds in a way that others don't and like one of the one of the folks that i worked with for a long time is a guy from Manchester who's I guess in his fifties now, maybe sixties. And I was talking to him. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got this Billy Bragg record. And he goes, I remember seeing him when he was touring student unis. Holy shit, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah no, he, this, this guy is a solid fucking dude. Uh, yeah, cool. He, this is kind of, this is a non sequitur, but he, we we all got very drunk in New Orleans, and he decided to read my palm and, and claimed that I had no lifeline. 
I am very deeply interested in the life story of this palm reader from Manchester. <laughs> but <laughs> there's a lot happening there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think Bragg is like pointing out something the right does where like yep. free speech is free speech for the sake of agreement. Sure. And free speech that is disagreement is seen as like cancel culture or divisive yep. or et cetera. And I think this is interesting when paired with Orwell, because he's fighting for democratic socialism. And he personally believes in doing violence to his political enemies. <laughs> this like, is a very good point. <laughs> like, he has this quote from the essay, The Lion and the Unicorn, quote, it is only by revolution and the native genius of the English, that the native genius of the English people can be set free. Whether it happens with or without bloodshed is largely an accident of time and place. <laughs> Super British guy. <laughs> or from homage to Catalonia when he says, when I joined the militia, I had promised myself to kill one fascist. After all, if each of us killed one, they would soon be extinct. Yeah, I've heard that quote before. It's a good fucking it's quote. It's a good quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's really funny when these people talk about like Orwellian cancel culture, when Orwell, one, as we said, the quote in the beginning, believes all writing and to some extent all speech is political. Yeah. And believes that if you disagree with someone enough, you should fucking murder them. <laughs> but it, now, I think there is a very... Yes, and... It, it definitely applies to when you're when your opponents are literal fascists. Yes. And I think that is a, a, a point to make explicit to certain individuals who are very active on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Discourse <laughs> when it comes to, I don't know, Ghostbusters. Or weird CGI kids movies that you have a strange affinity for. Not the same thing. We're not no. talking about that. No. <laughs> We're not talking about Raya the Last Airbender or something. No. <laughs> God, that was that was old man yells at cloud. Is that not the, the title of the thing? Avatar. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so I think that's like total disingenuous conservatism to take a guy who believed in killing his political enemies yeah. because all speech is political and he was scared of what they were going to do and be like, you can't cancel my book deal. George Orwell wouldn't like it. <laughs> like, you can't do both. Yeah. And it's super, it's that thing about Billy Bragg's getting out about like everyone has to agree or else it's fucking Orwellian, and Orwell yep. would have absolutely wanted to murder Josh Hawley. Probably. Yeah, what's the what's the eye patch guy's name? Uh, Dan Crenshaw. Yeah, Crenshaw. Another good guy. Yep. Solid individual. No notes. No notes. His yeah. vision could be improved, but besides that, <laughs> no notes. There is a certain individual on Twitter who uh, had this really fucking just good thread about RFK Jr. stepping into a catch-22 
and then ended it with, but you know who else was good at catching 22s? (laughs) 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 Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was really fucking good. (laughs) Oh, I hope whoever was the one who permanently injured Dan Crenshaw is having a great day today. Um, Because Dan Crenshaw flew to someone's house and tried to murder them. Fuck that guy. It at Iraq and Afghanistan. Oh, well, okay. All right. right. He got on a plane. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. 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 This is factually correct. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And the third sort of thing I want to touch on is that Charlie Kirk Ministry of Truth quote, which I find really interesting Mm -hmm. because it's all about. Yeah, very small face. Very small face. (laughs) It takes the Orwell anti-censorship thing and, like, cranks it up one notch. Mm. Because I think Orwell's actual critique is not that people are limiting what you can say. Obviously, that's that rice paper thin surface level thing. But the thing that actually happens in 1984 and that Orwell bemoans in a lot of things is language losing its meaning? Yeah. There's a great quote that I'm going to read now, actually. Uh, Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Quote, in our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Things like a continuance of British rule in India, the Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of the atom bombs on Japan, can indeed be defended but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face and which do not square with the professed aims of the political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. Defenseless villagers are bombarded from the air, inhabitants driven out of the countryside, the cattle machine gun, the hut set on fire by incendiary bullets, and this is called pacification. It's a good thing we've grown beyond that. Totally beyond. <laughs> and no longer do those things. <laughs> Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called the transfer of popu- population or rectification of frontiers. People are imprisoned without trial or shot in the back of the neck and sent to die of scurvy in Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. Mm -hmm. The inflated style itself is a kind of euphemism. End quote. Yeah. Yeah. And And when you're faced with that, it's like, how can you defend calling? They didn't want to publish my book after I defended the Nazis. Yeah. The same thing. It's like you're comparing yourself to being thrown in the gulag, which is not an accessible idea to people outside of those of us who have either A, read history, or B, seen Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered <laughs> Country. Where Spock same documentary. Kirk, same documentary where Kirk and Spock are sent to, no, not Kirk, uh, sorry, Kirk and Bones, or McCoy are sent to the Klingon uh, version of Gulag, which is an ice planet, 
and uh, Kirk decides to try and stuff a bounty hunter who is a shapeshifter. Jesus Christ, some of the writing in those is thin. Undiscovered <laughs> <laughs> Country is really fucking good. Like, aside from the elements where it's clear that Shatner wanted to do something. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, like, but no, Undiscovered, like, Undiscovered Country is really fucking good. Uh, yeah. If you have not seen it recently, you should. <laughs> That's my takeaway from the, this episode. <laughs> Aaron's Star Trek corner. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple corners. Multiple so many star corners. related corners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just wait till we get to Stargate. <laughs> the movie or the TV show. I like both for different reasons. That's fair. Kurt, Kurt Russell in the in the movie is a, a goddamn delight. The show is such fucking kish. Kitsch. That you just can't be like it's Richard Dean Anderson in the show is also Dean such Anderson. a fucking delight. He is, but I, I like that he plays the same character as Kurt Russell. Yes, Kurt Russell plays a suicidal alcoholic who has seen his kid shoot himself. And Richard Richard Dean Anderson is a is an affable dude who yeah. just happens to travel the stars who has also seen his kid shoot himself who is, yeah completely different personalities but the same character yeah really great <laughs> so outside of stargate yeah um, sorry i think the, the interesting thing about that charlie kirk quote for me is that like charlie kirk is directly trying to take the meaning out of language and that's Orwell's big fear. It's not just government censorship. It's governments controlling the world through euphemism. Yep. And Charlie Kirk is a person who uses phrases like enhanced interrogation or collateral damage. Yep. Or my favorite, the Clear Skies Act of 2003, which is just <laughs> about letting people pollute stuff. I'm still mad about yeah. it. I was six. But yeah. whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Or God forbid, fucking freedom fries, which I'm also still mad about. That, um, that. And yeah, yeah, just a, just a <laughs> slow head shake and stare I, I, into the foreground. I mean, this is just, it's the fucking, this is the thing that it, it America in particular has always been prey to this stuff. Yeah. Like we, we've done the equivalent of freedom fries multiple times in our country's history it's we are a nation that is founded on ginning up popular support for an unjust action based on the fact that we can lie to people and we can appeal to their lizard brains yep. in a way we we are a really good country for marketing yeah and always have been always will be and it's that thing right there of like americans love a fucking euphemism yeah everyone does to some extent but like you're saying americans are particularly susceptible yeah you cannot have silicon valley in any other country oh my god like you seriously you you couldn't fucking do it no and you, you cannot have meta aka facebook aka zuckerberg's wet dream Aka and, the worst idea I've ever heard of. <laughs> but you couldn't do it in any other country. And because you can do it here, it be it then because of the, the transitive property of global culture becomes transposed. 
to every other culture. Yeah. Because it latches its fucking meat hooks into America and then it, it, it here we are. Global. Yeah. Glo- goes global. And yeah, I I mean this is a hard agree, of course, shockingly <laughs> with yeah. like yeah, Orwell's uh big thing being like the 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 use of language to deconstruct what it is to be a human yeah and it's you 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 see really good riffs on this theme throughout culture in the 20th century and now i guess to an extent but that is like the central bit i think that conservatives right wings fascists whatever don't either willingly or uh, unwillingly get about 1984 is the deconstruction of what it is to be a person and how the way we interact the world is so tied to language. And that is like the most effective bit about Ingsoc in 1984 is when you take away the shades of meaning in the way that you can communicate ideas, the world becomes a a place with a smaller spectrum of light. Yeah, and you get that in certain other media, like Brazil, is a really good movie that touches on this. But no one no one watches Brazil unless they're like me, and you don't want to hang out with me at a party because I'll talk to you about Brazil and David Lynch movies, <laughs> and you want to go and you know see the the, the pretty woman or man in the, in the corner, and I'm going to be like, but no, we have to talk about Brazil <laughs> and Robert. Uh, De Niro and how that was the last good role he was in and then you're gone <laughs> shouting into the crowd <laughs> oh god in case you're wondering listeners I have no verification but I'm sure this has happened in real life he had that look in his eyes <laughs> Absolutely. maybe not literally but figuratively yes <laughs> Yeah, and I think that, like, that's somehow insidiously comes back around to all the other stuff we've been talking about, whether it's painting Orwell as an anti-communist or painting him as some, like, crusader against any form of speech accountability. It's that they take someone who had a nuanced opinion on all these topics and crush it down to that, like, in-sock newspeak thing of like hated Stalin he's on the right yeah said censorship was bad you can say whatever the fuck you want without consequences yep and i think that is in some ways the point of right wing philosophy is to make it things black and white yeah and they will always do that to folks like george orwell and to everyone else cuz that's how they view the world yeah I, I like i think there's so you sent me a few weeks ago a video about music theory. Yeah. And in that video, it was a good video. I liked the video. It was polluted by the presence of Ben Shapiro. It was. <laughs> and I, my day was darkened by seeing <laughs> Ben Shapiro. And let it not be misconstrued, uh, the video was anti-Ben Shapiro because Benny Shaps was talking about uh, how there's only real really one kind of music and it's the music that adheres to the way music was structured 
in the night 18th and 19th centuries in germany yeah specifically church music yeah and if you approach all of life with that stricture that it is either this or it's not this it becomes a lot easier to live your day to day but i i i don't think that if you i'm i'm sure this is going to be a contra- controversial opinion for you but if you approach that you, then you're going to you're missing things you know and it's like i don't think bach would have agreed with yeah. his thing being the only form of music cuz he was writing it specifically for patrons Mm-hmm. Uh, my my favorite Bach piece is not any of his like cantatas. Well, no, is not any of his like opera, not even operettas, but like you know the, the, the fugues or what have you, the, the oratorios. But it is a cantata, and the cantata for listeners who are not me is like a a, a sung piece. It's like a mini opera, and this mini opera is about coffee and how coffee is great. And within not, this, not wrong. Yeah, yeah. And within this this cantata, you have a a uh, a man who's like an owner of some business. I think like a the bar or something. And he's lamenting his daughter's infatuation with coffee. <laughs> and it, the whole piece is just it's a it's a very light thing that was commissioned by a, a coffee shop in it was either berlin or some other city and yeah it's great it's like a commercial jingle almost it's a commercial jingle and it's it's great but the point being like he wrote this because he was being paid to it's a patronage thing yeah and this shows that you know he he's writing things on one hand for supposedly the spiritual ascendance of humanity but also a coffee shop down the corner that he likes (laughs) so it's like he it's not you can't in intellectual honesty say that there is only one way to write things because people throughout the history of art music because that's basically what people refer to when they're talking about classical music is art music the music that is done in this specific thing they did it for certain reasons and you have a lot of influences of folk music, but it's a limited amount of folk music, right? It's it's folk music from Central and Northern Europe. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, musicians are a bit more of an interested folk than Ben Shapiro is. And so they're going to work in more... Uh, my rambling thing here goes back to what we introduced this episode in. And though I might not like Imagine Dragons, <laughs> they know what they're doing. And just because they are not the thrash and death metal that I so deeply love, <laughs> does not mean that they are not music. Yeah. And I think it's like that whole thing of like art and culture being objective is like a very right wing opinion. Yeah, exactly. And it just like, fucking isn't just like you we've spent an hour and a half ish talking about george orwell i don't like the guy very much i don't think either (laughs) of those books are very good (laughs) i like one essay i i can still like respect him in a way sure 
Because, like, it's, like, it's not objective. Like, people like the book. It's a good book. Fuck yeah. It. Yeah. It's like Madame Bovary. Yeah. Like, I hate that book, but I understand the impact of this on people. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, I just stop trying to limit what language is and make everything Please. only one thing. Please stop. <laughs> That's my thesis. And it's George Orwell's. And yeah. fuck you, Charlie Kirk, would also yeah. be George Orwell's thesis. <laughs> Definitely. I would uh, like to end our episode today on a George Orwell quote that I couldn't figure out how to get anywhere else in the episode. Mm. This is um, George Orwell referring to socialists, <laughs> okay, which good. he was one of. Yeah. He called them, quote, all that dreary tribe of high-minded women and sandal wearers <laughs> and bearded fruit juice drinkers who come flocking <laughs> towards the smell of progress like blue <laughs> bottles to a dead cat. <laughs> bearded fruit drinkers <laughs> so if you're not one of those three things not a socialist and I think that shows you everything that you need to know about post-war Britain yep. where it's like a marker of the upper class you could get by beyond ration cards was someone who drank fruit juice <laughs> this motherfucker has apple juice right? <laughs> yeah apple juice was the apple juice drinking socialist for the champagne socialists of like 1944 exactly like these are the people who have excess apples those motherfuckers <laughs> kill them all <laughs> they, they were not huddling in the, in the tube for days on end during the blitz yeah so uh, to end this episode, shout outs to high-minded women, sandal wearers, and bearded fruit juice drinkers. 